Welcome, everybody. To the H3 Podcast Live today's episode is sponsored by Captera, Lyft, Movement, and of course, Twitch Prime subscribers like you. Um, one small change I want to let everyone know about. You used to be able to watch VODs on our Twitch channel. Anyone could view it, but I recently changed it to subscriber only. The reason for that is because our, our show has been pirated so much and clips posted on YouTube. Usually I don't care about this stuff, but the algorithm on YouTube, because these clips are posted first, uh, it, it weighs them as the original. And so they get promoted as to be watched on the sidebar instead of our actual original episode because they're first to the system. So this, in a way, is our um, one method of combating that, making it harder to get the VODs. So, um, but our VODs are always up on YouTube within 24 hours the next day, so I hope that you don't mind being patient. And if you do want to watch the VOD, you could just subscribe. That being said, our next guest next Friday Ooh, I am excited to announce this guest. My God, this is the dream guest that we've all been waiting for. The gracious, illustrious, beautiful, classy, industrious. The illustrious. Did I say illustrious already? Probably. Ela Klein. That's right. I thought it'd be fun to bring Ela Klein to get in the hot seat and take, uh, take some questions from me. And you. What about me? Like oh, me. and you. Yeah, yeah, and you. Right, good point. <laughs> so next week on Friday, Ela is going to be our guest. And as usual, the, there is a thread on the subreddit for questions for her. I think it's going to be a wholesome, wonderful experience that I'm very much looking forward to. And that brings me to the uh, point of today's episode. Our guest is Jordan Peterson. He is a Canadian clinical psychologist, cultural critic, and professor of psychology at the University of Toronto. He came to wide prominence after speaking out against a new Canadian law, making it illegal to call someone by a pronoun that they don't identify with. Um, he's a critic of white privilege, cultural appropriation, postmodern feminism. He's a anti-social justice warrior, for lack of a better term. I hate to say that, but this is kind of what what he's he he's a he knows so much about so many things, and but he, that's what he's known for most widely, I'd say. Um, beyond that, though, he's an incredibly educated, well-spoken, and insightful person on pretty much every topic I've heard him discuss, even if I do disagree at times with some of his opinions. But I thought he would be a, a fascinating, dare I say, guest <laughs> to bring on today. And hopefully I'm hoping to steer clear of some of the more typical topics of conversation that we that people generally ask him about. And just want to ask him some general things about life because I think he's just an interesting guy with a lot of insight. So with that being said, please bring in the guest, Jordan Peterson. Yes. Thank you for joining us, Jordan. Please have a seat. And um, before we begin, there's a cus there's something we do customarily with all of our guests. And um, we generally ask them... <laughs> ah! <laughs> it sounds like it's good for you. Yeah, it's oh, good for my health. Oh, coffee thing and everything. Yeah, what's going to happen so, if I do this and if I don't do it? If so, I don't do it? If you don't do it, you're going to regret it because this is this is the largest vape ever made. Uh -huh. The 150 batteries. Uh -huh. So it's like if, diesel powered. Yes. Uh-huh. If you do do it, you're going to it will get you a little high but only for like 20 hours. 
It's a slight, <laughs> slight pack. No, I'm kidding. There's, it's just vape juice. I just thought it'd be like when the Olympics start. Hey, look, if it's rituals are important. Yeah, thank and you. And if this is a ritual that's important okay, to you, so then I'm, I'm happy to comply. Rip it fat. Okay, so I just breathe yeah, in. Yeah, breathe I? in. I got the button. Fat rips. Nice. You're good. Yeah, you get it. Damn, you know how to nice. keep it in. Nice. Well done. I would clap, but this thing would clap. Tasty, tasty. Nice. I'm, that, that was, was impressive. I gotta say. I've never one. really tried a battery-powered uh, vape or any other kind, of course. Of course. Of course. Of course. Yes. Yes. All right. Well. Well, please have a seat. And I'm now I'm thoroughly prepared. I want to yeah. uh, compliment you on one of the more graceful vape hits I've yeah. seen, actually. Yeah. You, you, you thought that was that was okay. That was it's a like, fat, well, it, it's, fat cloud. It's like my first time. Yeah, no, it's very <laughs> elegant and mm -hmm. wonderful. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Um, well, thanks, thanks for coming. How are you? How yeah. uh, how's your trip to LA been? I like LA, which is weird, you know, because <laughs> people always say I hate LA, but yeah. right. but I don't hate it. It's, I like LA too. I find that strange. The weather is like perfect, and for a Canadian, that's a really good thing. <laughs> right. And uh, yeah, I always have a good time when I come down here. I know lots of people in LA now. Mm -hmm. I like Venice Beach. It's really weird. It is, yeah. It is, yeah, yeah. I saw the funniest thing in Venice Beach. Well, maybe not the funniest thing, because <laughs> that's pretty funny. But I was sitting in a bar on the second floor about a year ago or two years ago or something like that. And you know how Venice Beach is sort of where the 60s washed up to die? Right, well, right. Well, a band started playing out in front on the sidewalk in front of the bar. And they were they're all 70. Like, I swear, they were in their 70s. And they're all hippies that were the same as they were when they were 30 or yeah. 20 or 19, mm. but they were 70. Right. And they were out with their tambourines and their, you know, hippie outfits, and they were doing the street band thing, and and it was, well, it was a perfect L.A. moment as far <laughs> as I was yeah. concerned. Yeah, Time yeah. stops there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Time has yeah. not passed over no, Venice no, Beach. No, no, no. I think the vaping, the continual vaping That's probably has, has something to it's do with secret. that. Yeah. You're about to start aging backwards. <laughs> yeah. So I want to talk first about how we met, I guess you could say. First time I saw you was when somebody posted a link on our subreddit of you sharing our video about Humongous in, <laughs> in during a lecture. A lecture. Yeah, with my, in my personality class. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so that was pretty funny. I saw, I saw that you had shared it, but I don't recall ever seeing your commentary about it. So I wanted to ask you, what did you, what did you think? What did you think about well, it? I was talking about ideological possession hmm. in the personality class and, and how it is that people participate in, well, acts of mass terror, you know, like hmm. those that occurred in Nazi Germany and also in the Soviet Union. And I thought that, and I'd watched the humongous, what would you call it? The, it's, I episode. Like, it's like a legacy. It's the yeah, humongous yeah, well, journey. So, so yeah, he was, journey. He, yeah, he was in the court <laughs> courtroom and he came out and this person came and asked him his name and, you know, he didn't know who she was and mm -hmm. he made this, you know, joke. And, uh, and then she went completely crazy yes. and, and really tore a strip off him. And I thought, I mean, it was like she didn't, she wasn't paying any attention to the actual reality of the situation. I mean, mm -hmm. I think you went and interviewed him in the corner store where he worked, wasn't it? Wasn't that yes. right? Yeah. Yeah. So he's this like working class guy. He's in a corner store. He doesn't know what the hell's going on. All of a sudden this hyper intellectual radical feminist just jumps on him and just has a fit. It's like. Nobody's it's, ready for that. No. Well, yeah. <laughs> no one's equipped. <laughs> Hardly anybody enjoys it either. <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's a funny thing. And so. And then I followed up what happened after that, you know, with with your fundraiser, which I thought was really cool, and also with her 
sort of justification videos. And right. I used her as, as an example of someone who is basically possessed by ideology, hmm. you know, because as far as I was concerned, when I was watching her, there was, there was almost no person there at all. There was hmm. just endless verbal no outpourings of a, of a formulaic hmm. view of the world. And she was willing to put this guy through hell. Hmm. She never looked at him at all, not even once really to figure out just, what he, who he was. That's why I call it like the cult of outrage because it does feel more like a cult. Mm -hmm. People don't really of outrage because <laughs> they are, they're outrage. addicted to outrage and they don't really think about if it, it's not it's not rational. It's just well, they're they're possessed. I think well, that's a good well you get possessed by ideas. You yeah. know, there's mm -hmm. this is something I learned really from Carl Jung, the psychoanalyst. You know, he said ideas don't <clears throat> people don't have ideas. Ideas have people, mm. and that's like that's worth thinking about for about five years because mm. it's very frequently the case. You know, and um, they, there's. She was on and on about oppression and, and empathy and all of these things. And I thought, when you looked at Humongous, you didn't see him as a person for even a second. You saw him as the manifestation of the patriarch or some damn Token. thing. I, well, it's funny how she, like, um, devolved. Because at first she's like, you're you're just a white oppressor. And then he's like, I'm actually a Latino. And she's like, oh, you're just a token Latino yeah. then. Like, right. there, there was never any classification that would, that would uh, appease her. Right. He, he also right. he also tried reaching out and like having a real meeting to talk about what happened with her, and hmm. she wasn't interested. Yeah, he tried to have lunch with the lady. Yeah, hmm, I didn't know that part of the story. I really right. liked your interview with him in the store. I thought what was <laughs> one of the things that was so funny about that was how the light broke yeah. behind him. Well, yeah, that was so perfect. It was like <laughs> yeah. you know you were doing this Saint Humongous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It was so funny. It really he's a great guy. Up. He's just he's a lovable. <laughs> He's a salt of the earth guy, yeah. you know, and it's like, <laughs> well, anyway, so, so, um, that's great that you saw that video. That was so funny to me to see one of our videos being taught, if you will, in a lecture. That, yeah. Well, it that, was perfect. Tickled me. Yeah. Well, to see, you don't get to see that sort of real time unfolding of that ideological possession. Mm. It's, it, it's, I, I, I teach, I also talk to my students in a different class about Pinocchio, you know, and. Before Pinocchio becomes a real human being, he's a puppet mm -hmm. and he's a marionette and other people are pulling his strings constantly and, mm -hmm. and his head is wood, you know, and that's, that's a little morality play about the fact that human beings are often controlled by forces beyond their personal understanding, especially if they haven't developed their character. And mm -hmm. so I thought that she was a very good example of that <laughs> and about the blindness that it produces, you know, mm -hmm. because she would have just had to look at him for beyond her perceptual blindness for five seconds to figure out that he was really not the oppressor that she was sure. uh, fighting, yeah. you know? I mean, far from it, it in fact. really the opposite. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I mean, then you, when you talk to him too, he had, what, his daughter was in trouble, right? Yeah, yeah. she was uh, addicted to heroin and the police had helped her get off the street and to rehabilitation. And that's why he was there petitioning on their behalf because he had a, had a positive experience with them. <laughs> it's great. I mean, yeah, yeah, it's great. It's all insane. Yeah. But yeah, I, I wanted to go into, I saw you tweet this recently and it really uh, shook me a little bit. I was, I, sh I was shocked to see this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I like this one a lot. This Let is... me, I'll, I'll introduce this. So, so you said those who consider themselves my enemies have been posting these all around my home neighborhood. And it says here, community safety bulletin. 
Jordan Pearson, a local man teaching at the University of Toronto, has been championing against the human rights of women, people of color, Muslims, and LGBT people for over a year. Peterson has open association with neo-Nazis and the alt-right, even being referred to as a Nazi philosopher by the leader of the new Constitution Party of Canada. Due to pressure from Jordan Peterson's alt-right fan base, the University of Toronto has not taken any action to fire him or disavow his attacks on minority groups. Look, this is awful. I mean, that's, that's kind yeah, of horrifying. Yeah, it's really something. Well, yeah. there's a bunch of things about it that I really, that, that, that <laughs> are really creative, let's say. The first is they posted it in my neighborhood. Yeah. Which is really nasty. You know, it's really sure. underhanded. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and like thoughtfully so, you know, there, there's a double message there. It's like, we know where you are. Mm-hmm. We sure. know where your family is. And we're perfectly willing to um, make that known and to hypothetically embarrass you in front of your neighbors. And, and the community safety bullet, and that's really a little stroke of genius, you know, because people are going to watch that. And then one of the most underhanded things they did, though, and which, which, which you can't really tell by looking at the poster, because I look kind of angry there. I know. But you yeah. look like you're yeah, yelling. Yeah, I know. It looks like, like I'm going to – exactly. Yeah. I'm going to chew something off there. And, um, but what's really interesting about that is that that picture was taken at a – rally that I spoke at in favor of free speech. Of course. Um, that I was invited to speak at. And during the rally, the same kind of activists who put up this poster took the mic and shut off the PA system and blasted everyone with white noise. So in order to be heard, I had to raise my voice mm. a lot. And so they took a picture. So really, here I am. They baited to, you. Yes. Essentially. Well, they made it, they made it impossible for me to speak unless I spoke very loudly. And yeah. so that's what I'm doing here. So they actually took a picture of me reacting appropriately in the situation to provocation from them to make me look like, well, who knows, like, like, well, like an angry, like, a like an angry guy. You're a monster. You just want to, you want to round up some minorities. Yeah. By the look of it. Yeah. I, this is some impressive propaganda. I mean, this yeah. is kind of it's, genius. Yeah. You're right. It is. It's impressive. It's and disturbing that people are, can be so consciously manipulative. Well, luckily, and I've had very much fortune in the last year, you know, because I've had a lot of protests when I've gone out to speak. Not always, but many times. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably McMaster University was the worst because they more or less shut me down completely there. But... Um, they're filmed all the time, the people protesting, right? Mm-hmm. And what they're doing is filmed by many people. And then all of the films go up on YouTube. And so, and every single time that's happened to me so far, the results have been positive. So the first video, that, which was part of that free speech rally, um, I was surrounded by trans activists, I, th- I think is a reasonable way to, to talk about them. Although, is it here? That's it. I've got you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's I it. To exactly. Ask you about this one too. That yeah. one. Yeah. Uh, well, okay. So what yeah. happened was that sure, was. You want to that... play it? Sure, sure, fans? sure. Yeah. The Nazi presence at your protest. The presence of Nazis and white supremacists assaulting people at your protest. Do you have any comment on that? Yeah, I don't like Nazis. <laughs> then why? Why were they here? Well, well how can I answer? Are there if, are there views in alignment with yours? At some point, yeah, you have I think to realize. That's a foolish question. Look, do you want to know what my views are? I've watched all of your videos. Yes. I love that. It's like you—you you clearly 
I doubt even your biggest fans haven't watched all your videos. Yes, yes, I have. Yes. Then why wouldn't you ask such a question? Because this is my interpretation of your videos. Apparently, I wanted all of the people who arranged the protest against you watched all of your videos. Like, do you want to disavow? I have 150 videos on YouTube. No, your lectures, which sparked the debate. Okay, okay. Do you want to disavow the support? Could you let me talk to her for a moment? Don't call me that, please. So she got you good there. Yeah, she did. Well, so what happened was I went out after this free speech rally. Yeah. And uh, I noticed that there were still some people out there and there was a couple of policemen hanging around. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to go out and talk to the policemen and see if anything bad had happened, you know, because sure. I just wanted to, to check it out. And when I went out, well, this, the people who you hear in this video were still there. And that's when they came running up to me and they videotaped this, right? And put it online. And Ironically, the same exact thing that happened to Humongous. Yeah. Right, right. Which was the thing that puzzled me the most. It's like, you thought this... Was good for you. Made like, you look good. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, but, right. Exactly. Yes, yeah, it's, it's it's it just shows how out of touch they are, really. Well, it's it's quite amazing, and you know, so this vi this video I think has been watched more than not necessarily this clip, but this event has been watched more than I think than any other video that I've either produced or or been in, and the comments are running like. 200 to 1 in mm -hmm. my favor, sure. something yeah. like this, between 50 to 1 and 200 to 1. And so that was a good example. And, um, well, and it's been a year of reversals like that. So when I went to McMaster and got completely shut down, you know, and the, the protesters there were quite aggressive. There's, mm. at most of these protests, there's a couple of people there that really aren't good people. Like a lot of them are just young people and they're sent out there by their idiot professors to, you know, to be activists and they're more or less having a good time in a, in a foolish way. It's like, you can't take that too seriously, but sprinkled in there are some men often who mm. just are not, they're just not there for good reasons. They're mm. looking for trouble. And one of the men a, and a woman that he was with were air horning me, you know, from two feet away or so. And I didn't find that the least bit amusing because air horns are, well, they're loud, loud. Yeah, which is why people use them, yeah. right? And so I wasn't really all that thrilled about the possibility of having my hearing damaged. Sure. But, um, that backfired too. Like I couldn't speak there. Well, I tried to, but no one could hear me. Then I went outside and a bunch of the people who wanted to hear me speak gathered around me. And so then I could speak. And so that went quite nicely. And then it was all, of course, put on YouTube. And the same thing happened. The protesters looked very, well, the protesters looked like what they were. Sure. And some of them were in there. This is the sort of thing that really gets me, you know. Um, this happened again about two months ago. I had a, this was a funny event, we were going to, Gad Sad, who's a professor at Concordia, who's been pretty active in, in the anti-radical left <coughs> movement, maybe if you'd call it that, in Canada, and I and Oren Amate, another professor, and a couple of other people were scheduled to do a panel on the suppression of free speech on university campuses, which mm -hmm. was canceled by the university, which is really pretty, yeah, it's you great. know, like, it's exactly what you'd expect in today's time where everything is upside down. But um, the, that's, that's where these, these protesters that put up the uh, posters, <laughs> oh. I'm sure it's the same, same group. Well, I'm not sure because I can't you know, be. But I, I'm always, uh, I don't even understand this concept that seems to be most, I mean, almost entirely prevalent on the like extreme left side where they protest conservative or not even conservative people they disagree with and they shut it down yep. to the point where, you know, like what happened to you? You can't even give the speech. And to me, that just seems like you're amplifying their message. Like it happened recently with like Milo 
he went to Berkeley and these people rioted and yep. shut down. And I don't personally agree with a lot of stuff that he says, but by going there and shutting him down and giving him all these headlines and stuff, you're just going to have more people listening to him the second time around mm-hmm. he delivers the speech. It doesn't intuitively even make sense, this idea of shutting down free speech. Like, well, it's certainly just don't not, listen. It's certainly not strategically very intelligent. Yeah, I yes. mean, what kind yeah. of what's happened to me in Canada is that the radical leftist types that have been protesting about me, um, they kind of quit because they noticed that every time they protested, then more people were listening to what I was saying and they looked bad. Mm -hmm. And so Ben Shapiro came up there at one point and I did a talk with him and some other people and there there wasn't a single protester at the event, which was really interesting. Mm. But then what happened was that the Ryerson event overlapped with what happened at Charlottesville. And, you know, everyone was very walking on eggshells after what happened at Charlottesville. And they petitioned Ryerson to shut down the talk. And I'm sure Ryerson was pretty willing to do that in any case. And then that's emboldened them substantially. You know, they won a victory Mm -hmm. and they feel like they've, you know, struck a blow for, well, for, for, I don't know, for what. So what happened two days after the shutdown was they went out at Ryerson and had a kind of a street party celebrating the fact that they, you know, stopped us reprehensible professors from having a discussion about free speech. Right. And it, and they came out under the banner of the hammer and sickle. And that's apparently okay because, huh. you know, but like, it's not okay. It's seriously not okay. That and at McMaster, they were under the ha- hammer and sickle too. Yeah. It's like, I mean, I, I get it to some degree because people aren't very well educated about what happened in what the Soviet means. Union. Yeah. No, well, yeah. or or if they do, and they're still doing it, well, then there's something seriously wrong. But right. you know, it's part of it's it's evidence for a serious flaw in our education system because sometimes, even the students I'm teaching who are pretty bright and and I wouldn't say particularly radical. U of T is a very conservative school, all things considered. You know, with the exception of the radical disciplines. But the first time they ever hear about the mass killings in the Soviet Union, which were unbelievably extensive, Mm -hmm. is often in my personality class in their second year of university. And that's no place Mm -hmm. to hear about that. It's not a history class. I mean, they hear about it in my class because I try to link. That's strange. It is. I feel like I learned about that in high school. Yeah, well, well, how long ago? Where did you go to high school? Here in California. How long ago? Oh, it must have been... Let's see. It must have been 15 years ago. Uh, okay. And and you did learn about yeah, that. Of you did, eh? Well, yeah. that's good. That's good. But uh, and, and college too, a very liberal school in UC Santa Cruz. But things were changing when I was coming out. It's not it wasn't like it is now. But my question I want actually wanted to follow up yeah. regarding this poster, the propaganda of people putting this up in your neighborhood and the general amount of hate that you get. I'm I'm wondering why do you think that people hate you so much? Well, why, they don't. Why, why are your opinions so divisive? Well, you know, the funny thing is like this is literally the case. I've had like four pieces of hate mail in the last year. Mm-hmm. That's it. Like I'm not getting hate. This this is not good. But you know, there's it doesn't take very many people to produce something like this. And yeah. it's the same old it's the same old suspects, you know? Like sure. I've been demonstrated against a number of times in the in the southern Ontario area, and I see the same people. It's like how many people do you need? They make to... a lot of noise. Yes, they do. And they're organized and they, they they do this sort of semi professionally. <laughs> well, let me ask you this. How do you feel? I know that people make this association with you because I've seen it when we have guests come on. We have a thread on our subreddit and people post their questions and I've seen it before. 
people associate you with with pandering to like white supremacists or worse. I've even seen the suggestion that you are a white supremacist supremacist yourself. So how do you feel about that? And that's that seems to be like a somewhat widely held. Well, I don't know uh, what to think about that. It's completely ridiculous. Like, for example, I'm the member of a I'm an honorary member of a Native American tribe. I got inducted Mm. last year. I have an Indian name. A Native American name. Like, it's completely preposterous. And I've been buying carvings from this, like, isolated tribe in northern Vancouver for, or on northern Vancouver Island for 15 years, you know. Mm. And so, and I've had a lot, my, well, it's, it's preposterous. And, and I mean, the, 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 there's evidence that it's preposterous. And the evidence is that I have 260 videos on YouTube and they must total at least 600 hours, something like that. And, you know, by now, people have been over them essentially with a fine-tooth comb. Virtually mm-hmm. everything sure. I've said in my classes to my students in the last 25 years is on video. Mm-hmm. And so if there was anything in there that was even remotely uh, associated with that, it would come out. And, but it's yeah. even worse than that because it's actually the opposite. Because the reason I've been teaching students for since 1993 about the Holocaust and what happened in the Soviet Union, you know, and I've been trying to make them understand how that's associated with with the unwillingness to accept personal responsibility and educating them as deeply as I can about the horrors of 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 exactly that sort of thing. Like it's obsessed me ever since mm-hmm. I was well, ever since I was very, very young. And so not only is it not true, it's it's anti-true. Mm-hmm. It's seriously untrue. Right, you know, right. and and I think also the other thing that's that's worth pointing out is that you know, I get angry comments from time to time about the fact that I post twit tweeters tweets to uh the the Kekistani types, you know. Mm-hmm. And but I get dozens of letters from people who well, both from the far left and from the far right or from the right, who said that they've listened to my videos and as a consequence have seriously modified their views, you know, mm-hmm. and moved they moved towards the center, which is, well, as far as I'm concerned, that's a much more appropriate place to be. Sure. So it's, there's no evidence for any of that. There's yeah. plenty of evidence for the opposite. <laughs> I think part of it is, though, that, you know, I'm, I've talked to lots of people in the last year, and most of the people I've talked to have been conservative. But the reason for that is they're the ones who ask me to talk. Like, mm-hmm. I'm perfectly willing to... I actually did a talk in Vancouver uh, about a year ago now called A Left-Wing Case for Freedom of Speech, mm. you know, because you can make a very strong left-wing case for freedom of speech. In fact, a stronger case, I would say, in some sense, because <coughs> to the degree that the left historically has genuinely been about <coughs> allowing the working class a voice, which I think is classical democratic socialism, mm-hmm. which has a very long tradition in Canada, mm. then it's freedom of speech that's absolutely crucial for that. Mm. And so it's very straightforward matter to make a left-wing <coughs> case for, for free speech. It, that's generally who makes the, right, the case for free speech. That's one of the things I want to talk to you about. And by the way, I consider myself like a very left-leaning classical progressive person. And um, it's confusing because growing up, the left was always the party of free speech, I felt like. I always felt like I was on the right side of social issues. But as time has progressed since I finished college, more and more I feel alienated by my own, like, political identity. Yeah, right. And I find myself more – in in terms of free speech, like, yeah, like you said, the right – people on the right are the ones that invite you. And so – 
Well, I, I'm, I'm of... confused. I, I'm, I think a lot of people feel the same way who grew up like classical progressives, but feeling alienated from their own political home. I feel like I have no identity anymore. I don't know. You know, I don't know where I stand on on which party to identify with. Well, that's exactly the same thing that Joe Rogan told me the last time mm. I talked mm. to him and my brother-in-law as well. He's a very, very smart guy. He said like he feels that his that that his political affiliation has moved away from him. Sure. Mm -hmm. And so and like I'm I by temperament, I'm not a conservative person. By temperament, mm. I'm a liberal person because I'm very high in this trait openness, which is a creativity trait, and it's mm. the best predictor of political belief. Mm. I'm quite conscientious and conservative types tend to be more conscientious. <laughs> so I've got a bit of both. Mm. But I'm by no means temperamentally or or intellectually a, a conservative. I, mm. I'm actually quite a radical thinker in many ways, although it's, it's, it's radicalism in the service of traditionalism because that's kind of what's happened now is that things are so chaotic that it's, it's radical to call for a return to at least certain kinds of tradition. Sure. Yeah. But it, it's also the case that if you stand up now and say um, the, the radical left attempts to control, say, language have gone too far and I don't like equality of outcome, theorizing that's deadly as far as I'm concerned then because you oppose that you're clearly on you're clearly far right it's like well no you're not mm. like centrist is perfectly fine to oppose such things left even is perfectly fine yeah. to oppose such things because that's equity in particular to to look at equality of outcome man that's we've been there before that that did not go well mm. so so let's um, let's take a short. That was the fastest thirty minutes I think we've ever passed on the <laughs> show. It did not feel like thirty minutes. We're going to take a short commercial break, and we will be right back with Jordan Peterson. We've got a lot of great stuff to talk about. Don't go away. Thank you to Movement. That's MVMT for sponsoring this episode of the Stream Podcast. These guys make incredible watches. Okay, and the company was founded on the belief that style shouldn't break the bank. The watchmaker's goal is to change the way consumers think about fashion by offering a high quality, had a stroke there for a minute, quality, quality, minimalist product at a revolutionary price. We are overthrowing the watch establishment. Watch this. Did you see this? Watch this. Oh, my God. Let me check the time. <laughs> I believe it's time to get a slamming hot watch at a revolutionary price. Am I right? Yes, That's you are. That's what it says. Man, listen. <laughs> I got one too. That is so elegant and wonderful. I mean, and for the price, unmatched. Listen, don't take it from us. These guys have sold over a million watches, okay? Once you sell a million watches, you pretty much just get to say whatever you want about your own product. And you can't <laughs> question it. They're the best at the best price. Now, I didn't even tell you about the best part. The watch comes in this sleek uh, box, and it comes with a tiny little screwdriver... And I didn't, we've, we've talked about this previously, but did you notice that there's a little bow tie? Can you see that, Dan? There's, there's a little bow tie on the screwdriver. Sold. I can't, I, you can't beat that. No wonder they sold a hundred million of these I things. my case. A hundred million, a million, tone it down. Um, <laughs> listen, guys, if you want to complete your look, you're dressing up or down. This watch can get you there. I'm, I mean, I can't really dress down any further. <laughs> I'm trying to dress down. Do you have any seaweed that I can drape around my wrist? But most people, you can dress down or up with this watch. And it's just incredible, guys. Now, 
If you are a fan of the H3 podcast, get 15% off today with free shipping and free returns by going to nvmt.com slash H3. My friends, it's a sling clink design that makes you a great fashion statement. Now's the time to step up your game. Seriously. Your girlfriend, your mom, they're going to look at you and say, it's about time that you stepped up your game. So that's nvmt.com slash H3, guys. You're going to get 15% off today. Watches start at just $95. So thank you so much to them. Appreciate you. And uh, Papa Bless. Next up, we've got Lyft. Lyft? Lyft. That's a new one. We all know Lyft. We all love Lyft. Do they know us? Apparently now they do. We're sponsored by them, so they know us now. <laughs> Lyft is great. Yeah, open your phone. You say, hey, I want to go somewhere. And some great uh, you know, person shows up and brings you there. Okay? Now, Lyft knows that their drivers are what keeps them moving. So they do everything they can to make their drivers happy on every trip. Happy drivers mean happy passengers. Maybe that's why 9 out of 10 Lyft drivers get a perfect 5-star rating. You can earn... Hundreds of dollars a week plus tips driving with Lyft. Lyft was actually the first um, ride-sharing company that had tips implemented oh. in their system. I remember That's cool. I started doing Lyft, and I was like, oh, my God, I could actually tip this sweet young man. Lyft me somewhere. I'll leave you a great tip. <laughs> really good. Great. Big I tip, tip huge. Big tip. Big tip. Papa will bless you. You keep 100% of the tips and they add fast. Drivers have been paid over $200 million since the feature was first wow. introduced. And Express Pay lets you get paid almost immediately instead of waiting four weeks, guys. If you're looking for a gig, a quick pickup, this is a great opportunity in my opinion. I think Lyft, and, Lyft is incredible. Like, you don't have to have a boss. You don't have to schlep around. You get in a car, and all of a sudden, you make your own hours. You're your own boss. Take the guesswork out of pickups. The new AMP device uses color coding to help passengers find their drivers. So join the ride-sharing company that believes in treating its people better. Go to lyft.com slash h3 today, and you get a $500 new driver bonus. Whoa. Wow, I'm going to go sign up. That's pretty nice. You should go sign up and start picking <laughs> people up, man. That's lift, L-Y-F-T dot com slash H3. Uh, that's limited time only, and terms do apply, but get in there quick because there's nice. 500 big ones waiting for you and a slick, great job. Thank you to Lyft. And finally, we have Captera. Gabish. Here's something I've realized. That's software solutions about every business need. Let me start that again. I don't get that. Here, let me let me skip down. Start it over. Let's start it over. <laughs> Listen, whether you're a startup looking to keep track of customers, a nonprofit hoping to have a record fundraising year, or a business that simply needs better payroll software, Captera's got you covered. Captera has over 400 categories of business software for you to choose from. Anything from email marketing to scheduling and accounting and beyond. Way beyond. You're going to have to look through there for the beyond. They don't help you much, but there's tons. Captera makes it easy to find what you're looking for. They have thousands of ratings and reviews of actual software users just like you. Best of all, using Captera is, you guessed it. You guessed it, Hila. Using Cap is it something that rhymes? It's absolutely free. Oh. <laughs> High five. 
<laughs> I was thinking like it's the the hottest. Yeah, it's absolutely free. The no, hottest. Nothing rhymes business. with Captera. Captera, Cap. Tar. Yeah, it's a tough one. It's an orange. That's why it took me so long. It's absolutely free, though, is the correct answer. And incidentally, it's also true about Captera. I'll sponsor. Captera connects <laughs> you with the business software that you need to do what you do better. So, guys, go to Captera, C A P T E R R A dot com slash H3 and join the millions of people that use and love Captera for free. Get your business in order, make your mom and your girlfriend proud of you. You know, get the software that's going to put your life. I wonder if they have software that's like, put your life together. (laughs) Schedule my day for me. How do I get a girlfriend? That's the name of the software. (laughs) How do I not suck at life? They got that. That's the beyond part that I was mentioning. (laughs) So go to captera.com slash H3 guys and start your, get your business going in the right direction. So if you are in the business for some business software, a watch, or you're looking for a gig with uh, Lyft, please uh, consider supporting us because they support us. And that's how we do. We're people helping people, right? <laughs> All right, guys. Let's get back to this episode with your boy, Jordan Peterson. Welcome back, everybody, to the HG Podcast with Jordan Peterson. We were speaking about this community safety bulletin, beautiful little piece of propaganda and uh, you had wanted to add something? Yeah, well, okay, so they produced another poster recently. I guess oh. it's been posted up at the university. And they said that I said that I had enemies mm. when I responded to this poster. And mm. actually, that's not what I said. Mm. I said those who mm-hmm. consider themselves my enemies, sure. which is really very different. And I, like, I'm very careful with my words. Oh, yeah. I crafted yeah. that very carefully. I didn't say I had enemies. And in fact, when the students who are protesting me or the, the, the trans activist types, I don't consider them my enemies. Hmm. So, you know, enemies are people that you wish harm to. Sure. And I don't wish harm to them. What do you so, consider them? Well, it depends on who they are, you know. Um, like these people in the video who are like, how do you, accusing you of being a Nazi sympathizer or Oh, well, that, that particular Nazis. person, I mean, um, what, what would I say? I, I couldn't, I couldn't, it wasn't very easy to communicate with with her. Hmm. Um, she knew everything already, hmm. and she'd already had me pegged. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'm kind of accustomed to that sort of thing. In some sense, I am a clinical psychologist. Like hmm. it isn't that easy to do something around me that will actually surprise me. I've seen lots, and but young, arrogant, misguided, hmm. confused. Um, all those things, and, and none of that's good, you know? And so it doesn't raise feelings of hatred in me. It's, sure. it's more like sadness that, that, that that's the case. I mean, the people who were protesting against me that day, it wasn't like they were happy, well-adjusted people having sure. good lives. Yeah. It's like they're, they're very confused consumed for a variety by, of reasons. by horrible feelings. They're just consumed by rage. And bitterness. Mm-hmm. And bitterness. And resentment. Yeah. And yeah, it's so really all the not, worst things. not good. But I don't yeah. wish them harm. That, that would be foolish. Sure. You know, I wish that they would get their act, that they would find their way and, and get their act together. That would be really good. Hmm. Well, I, when I saw that, I thought it was wonderfully crafted as, as well. Those who consider themselves my enemies. Yeah. And I mean, how can that not be true? You really got to have a bitter heart to put something like that up about someone. Yeah, well, in their neighborhood. In it's, a way, even if it's true, it's like... I, mm-hmm, I feel like damn. it's just like a shame to choose 
someone like you, for example, as an as their enemy to go after like when you could actually go after some real hateful people instead, you know, yeah, well, there's like, no distinguishing anymore, you know it's it's if you're not with us, then you're a yeah. white supremacist, it's like right, yeah, okay, well that 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 stacks up the old white supremacists pretty high. you don't necessarily want to be doing that well, i want to that kind of segues into what I want to talk about yeah. next and i and I want to segue out of the politics because I okay. think you have so much to say about so many other topics, but I guess I'll use this as a launching point to to kind of go to another place. But, you know, and this show, we, we generally steer away from talking about politics because it's just so divisive that people who are listening are going to get they're going to unsubscribe. They're going to curse my name. They're going to it's an unsettling amount of hate. And these are people who have agreed with me all the whole way through. They chair. They, they like our content. They've stuck with us. And all of a sudden, when I say something politically that they disagree with, um, they're out. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm dead to them, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think about the political divisiveness in our country or world right now? And what steps can we take to improve the discussion between, you know, members of the left and the right impassioned members who, you know, arguments between the two typically just devolve into reducing the other side to fools or even downright evil? Yeah, right. right. Well, I think in some ways you just circumvent it entirely. I mean, what I've been trying to do in the last well, for a long time. It's not just in the last year. I mean, I produce software with my business partners to help people get their lives together. Hmm. And that really works. We have a program, the future authoring program, that if university students do it, it increases the probability that they'll stay in school by about 35%, especially Hmm. if they're not really very goal-oriented and don't have a great academic uh, background. Hmm. Or as it turns out, if they're visible ethnic minorities, it really helps them a lot. Like uh, hmm. we, we did research in Holland to show that uh, massive improvement in academic performance at the business school at uh, Erasmus University with Michaela Shippers. We were working with her. So I think the, like the, the message that I've been trying to put forward, and, and I thought a lot about this political polarization issue way before it became such a major current issue, you know, hmm. was that it's better for people to concentrate on putting their own lives together and mm-hmm. to straightening out the things that are immediately within their, their competence mm-hmm. and, and to, to get good at that before extending themselves out into the broader community, you know? That's and, a great insight, actually, Yeah, I think. Well, it's also one that's highly saleable. And, you know, because one of the things that's been mind-boggling to me, well, there's been a bunch of things in the <laughs> last year, but you may know or may not know that I've, I've done a 13-part series recently called uh, The Psychological Significance of the Biblical Stories. Mm. And I have a... The reason I'm doing that is because part of the biblical narrative, which is at the substructure of our culture in some sense, is the idea of the divinity of the individual and the importance of truth and personal responsibility. I mean, that that, the the whole narrative that constitutes the Bible, even only in the Old Testament, say, but is the idea that there's something important about the individual and something sovereign about the individual, like that's sort of the locus of being. Mm. And so I've been talking to audiences about that, but also about personal, about aiming high, about taking on personal responsibility and trying to tell the truth. And you know, you'd think, well, that's not really a very commercially saleable message, let's say, publicly um, um, popular message, but that's not right. Like when I talk about those topics in front of a live audience now, and my live audiences are almost always a vast majority of men. Mm-hmm. They're 
absolutely like you could hear a pin drop in the in the hall in the lecture hall mm-hmm. because people have been fed a non-stop diet of rights and freedoms for 60 years and it's like enough of that already you know it's not most of the meaning that you have in your life isn't a consequence of your untrammeled freedom and your rights it's a consequence of the responsibilities mm-hmm. that you choose to take on the heavy responsibilities right. I and mean, you guys have this podcast you know it's like that's a lot of work you're talking to a lot of people you've got i mean it's a privilege and all that sure. and mm-hmm. But, you know, you've got to be clued in and do this right because you're quite influential. And, mm. you know, I'm sure you're in deeply engaged with that. And so I really do think that, that to engage in that polarization is a mistake because you increase it. Now, mm. I've had some political... How do, you, how do you deal with these people, though? Like, um, how do you navigate? Because it's just a fact, right? Like, how do I, as an entertainer or... Someone who you're saying just don't don't even acknowledge well, it. Well, like, let's I, say, I would know. say concentrate on other things. Right. Like, mm-hmm. and and I think actually I think that what you did with Humongous was actually really quite. This part of the reason well, I used it is because you you went to the level of the individual first. Like you looked behind the ideolo- ideology and you said, look, this guy, like he's a working class kind of guy, works in a corner store. It's like there's no reason for him to be tangled up in this. This is really hard on him. He's got a rough life in many ways. It's like he didn't need this. And so yeah. you, you didn't get political about it except by inference, you know. Um, I know you had to a bit because of the content of the uh, the verbal assault to which he was subjected. Mm-hmm. But you, you went at the human end of it, which was the individual end, and that worked out really nicely. I thought it was a really good gesture and, and at the right level of analysis. Mm. So I I think that... The way you fight against idiotic, ideological polarization is by getting your life together, trying to straighten out your family, trying to do something useful for your community, and like staying away from that ideological oversimplification, mm-hmm. regardless of whether it's radical left or radical right. I mean, I like that's that. really interesting. Yeah, I like that a lot. Are you are you somehow suggesting that people aren't developed enough? They haven't developed themselves enough to participate in politics? Oh, definitely. I'm suggesting that, that. that's like a high level act of, of participating in a society. Absolutely. Like back in the day, people would participate in pol- politics. They would take it s- extremely seriously. They were well-read. They were literate. They cared about it. But they and also usually days, had like some life experience. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, what the hell do you know when you're 18? Sure. You can, you've, been, you've been taken care of for your... There's nothing wrong with 18-year-olds. You know, I, yeah. I teach them all the time, but yeah. you, you've been taken care of by someone or the state your whole life. You don't know anything when you're 18. Yeah. You know, and, and that even if you're intelligent, you don't. Sure. Um, and you've got lots, like you need to you need to figure out how you're going to contribute to society and support yourself. You're going to have to figure out what you're going to do about having a family and taking on some responsibility there. And, you know, transform your relationship with your parents into something that actually exists between mature adults and mm. find a partner. Like you've got things to do. Sure. And if you think that you know how to sort the world out before you've even put those sorts of things in place, then you're badly misinformed. And I would also say that the people who've been teaching you are, they're not 100% to blame, but they're not helping these activist disciplines that say, well, you know, the world is a consequence of the corrupt patriarchy and what you should do is be an activist and oppose it. It's like, Mm. no, you should go out there in the world and try to do something useful. And then maybe you'll develop enough wisdom so that you could dare to have a political opinion mm. or two, mm. you know, so. That's great. I love that. 
I like that too. Can really relate. The problem is like these these people don't have the experience, like you said. They don't acknowledge it, and somehow they're so uh, ferociously confident in their in their opinions. Well, they're taught that in some sense, you know, because part of what happens in universities now, especially in the activist disciplines in the humanities, is they're fed this idea that there's no, re- there's nothing, there's no such thing as knowledge. Hmm. There's just justifications for power games. And so if the patriarchy, if the people who are dominating the patriarchy put something forward to you as knowledge, all they're really doing is oppressing you and, and justifying their position at the top. Hmm. And it's like, well, partly they're doing that because no hierarchy is without corruption. Okay. Mm. So it's, it's, there's a tiny bit of it that's true, but most of the case in our society is that most of the hierarchies we have are hierarchies of competence. You know, you don't get to the top by being brutal and tyrannical. That just doesn't work Mm. except in rare circumstances. And it doesn't work for very long. what What do you think about this theory that sociopaths rise to the top? No. You don't buy that? Really? No. Did they? And, well, I know it's not true. I've, I've actually studied sociopathy and psychopath, psychopathy a lot. Psychopaths are generally not very successful. Interesting. And, well, it's partly, it's partly because they, see, they say you can fool some of the people some of the time and sure. so forth, right? Yeah. Well, the thing about psychopaths is that they betray people and people really remember mm. betrayal. And it doesn't take much betrayal to have your reputation seriously damaged and word gets around fast. So psychopaths, the real psychopaths, they have to move around. They need new victims all the time. And so, you know, I'm not saying that there aren't crooked people who rise to the top in certain organizations. That happens. But it's not a stable solution. And it's more rare than you think. Now, you do see this sometimes when when rot sets into a company. You know, a company will have developed a good reputation and you get a bad group of executives at the top and their interest mostly is in stripping the company of assets and mm. taking off with them. Mm. You know, but there, there is corruption in every system. But the, the idea that the, like the best way to succeed in modern Western culture is to be intelligent and conscientious. Those are mm. the best predictors. And, and conscientious people are generally quite trustworthy. Sure. So, and you know that, like, who are you going to trade with? You're going to trade with people you trust. Yeah. And and word gets around, man. I guess I That's overestimated true. the. I just love that Kurt Vonnegut. <laughs> what is it? I don't remember, it, but that's what socio- he says. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> but it's just more of a funny. Yeah. What, what is it? Something um, like just that the country's run by sociopaths because like of its f- failed uh, Harvard sociopath students or something like that. Like running the, the country. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's well, more I'm, funny than. Well, the true. thing is, is that. That, you know, <laughs> it's more funny than true. Yeah, That's yeah, yeah, yeah right, it, yeah. right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, the other thing is, is compared to what? Like, you want to live in a, you want to live in an African country under an African tyrant? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think so. Or, or in communist China, for that matter. Or how about North Korea? It's like, who exactly are you comparing us to? Yeah. So, so yeah, there's corruption, but. Okay, I mean, that's, that's kind of a good insight. I think, yeah, I just overestimated the abilities of sociopaths. But I think what you're saying about them moving around... They have to move around, is, man. ...is uh, rings And they true. pray... Yeah. The sociopathic types, too, they prey on the elderly. Like, they're, they're bad really? people. Oh, yeah, well, th- this is a big problem now with computers. I mean... Oh, like, these oh, are the guys... Like, you know, like this all the ha- frauds? Yeah. 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 To my grandma, yeah. she calls me up out of the blue. She's like, 
I uh, just got a call from you in Mexico saying that you were stranded there and needed me Union to send money. you 1500 bucks. Yeah. I was like, what the... Yeah, you know, exactly. Oh, yeah, well, that's a, so, that's that's a sociopathic. Mm-hmm. You, know, you think people... they're sociopaths to do that or they're just like opportunistic people? Or what's the difference? Oh, you got to be... The real psychopathic types, they, they have no conscience. Like you're there to be plucked. You're an NPC in a video game, yeah. as it's been described. Yeah, exactly. And And they're relatively rare and they do have to move around. And... You know, they can be successful in extraordinarily corrupt environments for short periods of time, but mm. it's just not a stable solution. I, mean, I can give you an example. Well, I'm curious. What do you yeah. think about, like, the high-ranking officers in the Nazi party? Were these psychopaths that were thriving in an unstable, corrupt situation? Or are these otherwise decent people that just got twisted up in the, in the well, times? Some of the, well, there were, there were a little of column A and a little of column B. You know, like there was certainly openings in the Nazi hierarchies for people who were compassionless and cruel and vengeful and, and, and all of that. The SS is a good example of that. Mm-hmm. But there's a great book um, that I would recommend to your, to your listeners, to your viewers, called Ordinary Men uh, by Christopher Browning. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a great book. Um, and it tracks the development of... So when the Nazis moved through Poland, they left policemen behind to maintain order, let's say, but it was still under wartime. And Browning tracked the behavior of this one unit of policemen. They were all middle-aged guys, just typical middle-class, you know, bourgeois guys. They'd grown up really before Hitler, so they weren't thoroughly indoctrinated like the Nazi youth, Mm -hmm. say. And and they were sent to, to Poland. And their commander said, look, you guys, it's wartime. And you know, there are traitors everywhere and you're going to have to do some pretty horrible things here. But if you, you don't have to, you can go home if, if you think that's just too much. And the, the, none of them did. And you think, well, why not? They had the opportunity. But the reason was, well, they were comrades, let's say, in arms, you know, so they had that esprit de corps thing going and they were all thinking, well, I'm not going to like run away and leave my colleagues to do all the dirty work. It's a yeah. war. And they have so a duty. To they their, have a duty. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So fine. So, you know, they started by rounding up all the Jews who were between 18 and 65, the men and like shipping them away. And, and they ended up by, this is, this is rough. It's a rough book. They ended up, you know, taking naked pregnant women out into the middle of fields and shooting them in the back of the head. And so you think, well, how does a man transform in that manner? And Browning shows you like, it's not pleasant they went through psychological hell each step of the way, but they went, mm. you know, so lots of times it was ordinary men who went down the bad path one step at a time. And sometimes it was like people who were rotten to the core, like their minister of propaganda or mm. Mengali, the doctor. I mean, you know, he was a sadistic psychopath of the highest order. Mm. Is, um, is there a mastermind? It seems so complicated to, to to transform an ordinary man, as the book says, into just uh, someone who's willing to, to execute a pregnant, innocent woman. Is there a mastermind that plots the course of that? Or is it just, um, circ- like, does it just happen naturally as the, along with the objectives of the, like, how do, they, how do they orchestrate something so complicated like that? Well, I mean, the, the Germans were an organized, are an organized people, were an organized people. And Hitler really didn't give out directives precisely. He sort of hinted at what he might want and then his minions would get together and, you know, lay out policies in accordance with what they thought were his wishes. And I mean, there's a book, another book I would recommend called uh, Eichmann in Jerusalem. And Eichmann was really the uh, 
architect of the final solution in many ways. Mm. And it's a characterological analysis of Eichmann. And Eichmann was in no way a psychopath. You know, he was perfectly capable of, I think there, I think this is actually a true story. I might have it confused with another story, but it doesn't matter really. It's, it's, it's the same idea. He, one, there's a story about him driving home after work one day and running over a cat and having like a terrible emotional reaction to it, mm-hmm. you know, and it, it's not like his kids didn't love him and, you know, but, and he wasn't out there actually killing people. He was just making the plans. He was the right. bureaucrat behind the scenes. And he was the sort of guy who had his mum do his laundry when he went off to the army, you know, mm-hmm. he was a, he was a faceless bureaucrat mm-hmm. and he would have worked. In any bureaucracy, he was worried about his next promotion. He wasn't thinking about the larger mm. consequences. And so, and that's Hannah Arendt. And she, that's a very classic book, uh, Eichmann in Jerusalem. And that's, that's very much worth reading if you're interested in this sort of thing. One of the interesting things I always heard about the Nazis that he really humanizes them in a way is that they were, and you could, I might be wrong about this, but they were passing out alcohol to all the soldiers, especially those in the concentration camps to keep them intoxicated all the time so that they could conf- not confront the horrible things they were doing. Yeah, well, they had all sorts of, 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 they learned how to do it across time, right? I mean, you know, it, it, so Hitler started, one of the things Hitler started, it, it's a very strange story in many ways because Hitler was obsessed with order and cleanliness. Hmm. He was a very orderly person <clears throat> and um, he was very sensitive to disgust, you know, because you think, well, the Nazis were afraid of the Jews, you know, because they were other. And that's not right. What, what's more accurate is that the, especially Hitler, he, 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 was, he was very sensitive to disgust. That's what it looks hmm. like. And if you're disgusted by something, then you want to eradicate it, hmm. right? If you're afraid of something, you want to run away from it. If you're disgusted by it, you want to burn it to the damn ground. You want to hmm. get rid of it. And his writings, like I read a book, um, called Hitler's Table Talk, which was his uh, spontaneous discussions during dinner time from 1939 to 1942. It's really mm-hmm. another amazing book. And um, we had been doing some work in, uh, inspired a bit by Jonathan Haidt, who's done a lot of work on disgust and the relationship between trait personality. And I was reading this book at the same time, and it was just unbelievable how often Hitler referred to the people he was eradicating, you know, the Slavs and the Gypsies and the Jews and all the people he went after as parasites and as rats and as insects and all of that. So they were kind of put into that category. So, and here's a horrifying part of that story. Like when Hitler first came to power, he put in a lot of public health initiatives, um, including mass tuberculosis screening, which actually turned out to be a good thing. Mm. And at the same time, he went on a beautify the factories campaign. And so he convinced the German uh, uh, factory owners and so forth to, to increase the levels of hygiene in the factories, to get rid of the rats and the mice, to plant flowers out front, you know, to make everything look neat and orderly. And the insecticide they used was Zyklon. Well, Zyklon, to, so to eradicate the rats and the insects, Zyklon, a slightly different formulation, was the gas that was used in the concentration camps. And so Hitler went from cleaning up the rats and the mice in the factories and the insects, and then he went into the mental hospitals and started cleaning up in there. And then, mm-hmm. like, it just went mm-hmm. broader and broader, again, sort of one step at a time. You know, and the Germans had plenty of reason to be resentful and, and hateful because, I mean, think about what they went through. We can't even imagine it. The, first of all, there was World War I, and so there was many men, like Hitler himself, who served in the trenches. And there's one story about Hitler. He, um, 
he won a medal for heroism in World War I, and uh, he was sitting around with a group of his buddies and went off to do something, God only knows what. And when he came back, they were all dead because a, a, a mine had landed, uh, not a mine, I don't remember, what's kind of some kind of shell had landed in the middle sure. of them and killed them all. Mm-hmm. It's like, that changes you. Yeah. You know, and then afterwards, there was all these brutalized men who'd come out of the trenches. I mean, you just can't imagine what it must have been like in the trenches, you know, especially if you're there for like a couple of years. You aren't the same person. Get out of there. You're unemployed. Your country's in ruins. Then the hyperinflation hits and every single person in Germany who ever saved any money at all is flat, bloody broke. Mm. And then there's a communist revolution brewing in Russia and it's like, it's hell. (laughs) And the Nazis came along and said, well, not only are we going to restore order and greatness, but we're going to bloody well tell you whose fault this is. Mm. It's like, and Hitler, I've studied him a lot trying to understand what happened and Hitler was... Carl Jung called him the mouthpiece of the collective unconscious of the German people. So you imagine there's all this resentment and hatred brewing underneath the surface and all this, this chaos is there and the desire for order is like clamoring in everyone's minds. And Hitler comes along and he's, he's a very powerful emotional orator and he's watching the crowd and he listens. And when he says thing A, nothing happens. When he says thing B, everybody roars. Hmm. And so he takes note of that. And it's not even conscious exactly, right? Because he's being molded by the crowd. And so they roar. And so we think, so that's a reinforcement. That's a reward. And so then he goes down that line a little bit farther and they roar some more. And then he tries mm-hmm. something else and it's silent. Maybe it's becomes like, what they want. You bet. Yeah. Exactly yeah. that, man. He, he acts out the dark desire of the mob. Mm-hmm. So he becomes the embodiment of the dark desire of the mob. And that's partly, that's partly why he had the charisma. It's right, because there's this unconscious fantasy brewing in the back of everyone's minds. You see that to some degree now with Antifa, for example, and, and their proclivity towards violence. You know, and you ask, what well, just exactly what's going on there? Well, Hitler came to embody the desire of the German people for order and revenge. And he, he embodied that fully. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and you could say, so what happened was a collaboration between him and the people. It wasn't mm-hmm. Hitler turned everyone into sure. Nazis. Yeah. It's like, yeah. no, that's not how it worked. I'm sure there was a lot of good people still left over who got just overrun by the mania, too, well, who were disgusted well, by it. Well, the, the other thing, too, is that, you know, people are not that brave. Hmm. And everybody thinks this is one of the things I teach in my Maps of Meaning class. You know, it's like, okay, you you look at Nazi Germany in the 30s and you think, well, I'd be one of the heroes who rescued the Jews. It's like, statistically, that's very improbable. Right. And one of the things I've learned in the last year with all this strange political, what would you say, this strange situation that I've been in is how unlikely it is for people to speak up. They just won't. Even tenured professors who are tenured, they're protected. It's like the probability they'll, they'll pop their head up and say something that might make them identifiable hmm. is very, very low. So guess pe- it's scary, yeah. I guess you're right. Well, it, it's and, all... And at time, and, you know, in Nazi Germany, the stakes were as high as it could get. They didn't tolerate That's dissension. right. That, that's exactly right. But, but you, even when the stakes are low, people won't speak right, up, sure. eh? Do you... Uh, well, let, let's, let's, let's do a 180 here. Uh, this is always something I've been interested for, something that I've, I've, I've wanted to enrich myself with. I think a lot of people. You're, you're a busy guy, as far as I can tell. You do speaking engagement lectures. You operate a YouTube channel, presumably. You're a voracious reader. I saw you on the couch. You had a book open. 
Yeah, like a moment you're reading. Yeah. And you're a prolific tweeter. You tweet a lot. <laughs> so my question is, how do you... a manic tweeter. <laughs> you, are a, you are a prolific tweeter. How do you organize your time? How do you remain focused and productive in the face of insurmountable work? Lists. Mm. Schedules. And I have help. I mean, my wife in particular in the last year has been unbelievably helpful. I mean, it's become a full-time job for her really, helping mm. me manage my schedule and mm. keep me on track. But a lot of it is like I get up in the morning, I have like everything scheduled. I know exactly what I'm supposed to do. There's a hierarchy of of <coughs> uh, of priority. Mm. And, and I'm really operating on a day-to-day level right now because right. there's so many mm. things to do. I can't look more than about a day or two ahead, although it's it's – it's basically scheduled, mm. you know, but um, I learned to discipline myself when I was in graduate school, when I was writing, I, I wrote a book called Maps of Meaning that was published in 1999 and I worked for that, on that for about 15 years, about three hours a day and I really sort of grabbed myself by the scruff of the neck and like forced myself to learn how to concentrate without, without deviation. How do you do that? You know? I mean, what do you, how, how, do you, how do you focus that intensely? Because I, I often have trouble like... yeah. I get overwhelmed sometimes when when I have a lot of work and the the worst feeling is like when I feel like I have a ton of work and I do work all day but I still feel like I didn't get anything done. Yeah. Yeah, but you and probably I feel that all did. The time. You probably did. Probably. Are you a conscientious person? Do you know? I don't even know what, what you, exactly that means. Yeah. Oh, how do you okay. That? Well, okay, so that's another thing we could mention briefly. I have a uh, website called understandmyself.com and I set up a Coupon code for your viewers. Oh, okay. yeah, what is so it? So it's H3H3. Oh, what cool. say that so you are the domain? Understandmyself.com. Okay. And you can go there and take a personality test that was devised in my lab. Uh, the main researcher was Dr. Colin DeYoung, who is now a professor at the University of Minnesota. But we took the standard big five trait model, which is the standard modern personality model. So that's extroversion, which is a positive emotion dimension. And extroverted people are enthusiastic and assertive. So you're both enthusiastic. You're really assertive. That would be my guess. I can be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you wouldn't be doing this sort of thing if, yeah, if okay. you weren't extroverted. Okay, right? sure. Yeah. So because, you know, you're, you're, you're verbally fluent and, and um, you like to engage in that sort of thing. Um, so that's a positive emotion dimension. It's associated with the positive emotion that you feel when you're moving towards desired things. Mm-hmm. Um, and the next dimension is sometimes it's called neuroticism and sometimes it's called Lots negative emotionality. <laughs> well, Big on neuroticism. people who are high in neuroticism uh, have some anticipatory anxiety. Um, you know, you know, you have anticipatory anxiety if you're worried about going somewhere yep. and it really bugs you. And then you get there and like 20 minutes later, you're calm and it's okay. Big time. So, Every yeah. single time. Big time. Okay. <laughs> Every week. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So that's withdrawal. That's, that's an aspect of, of neuroticism known as withdrawal. And the other aspect is volatility and volatile people are touchy and irritable. Huh. So, and, and that's, that's the second dimension. The third dimension is agreeableness and agreeable people are compassionate and polite Hmm. Hmm. and disagreeable people are competitive and blunt. Hmm. And so women are higher in agreeableness than men. Um, So if you take a random man and a random woman out of the population, general population, and you bet on who is more agreeable. If you bet on the woman, you'd be right 60% of the time. Mm. 
And the other place where men and women differ is with trait neuroticism. Women are more susceptible to anxiety and depression. So if but how you, can you say that if genders don't exist? Well, yeah, that, that's okay. another thing yeah. that I'm general, genuinely <laughs> accused of is that biological essentialism. Yeah, then, uh, but uh, what do, I feel like I'm experiencing those different feelings depending on the day. Yeah. Sometimes I'm more extroverted. Some days I'm more reclusive. You know, uh, is it generally... That's probably volatility too. It's mm. like variation okay. in mood. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So have you ever had periods of depression? Yeah. How long? I mean, you don't have to tell me. No, obviously. I can tell you. It's okay. In college, I'd say a couple of years. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's a long time. Well, yeah. so that would be an indication. Well, it could be an indication of many things, mm. but that's often associated with higher levels of trait neuroticism. Because you see, it isn't obvious how much negative emotion you should feel. Like, let's say you wake up in the morning and you have an ache in your side. It's like, well, is that nothing or cancer? Mm -hmm. Well, you don't know. Like, you shouldn't jump to the whole cancer conclusion. Right. But but Ethan I would. would. Immediately. Well, but you can't tell, eh? Like, it's yeah. not necessary. Like, and you think, well, if it is cancer and you miss it, well, that's not so good. Yeah. You know, so sometimes <coughs> there's some utility in being on edge all the time, especially in a dangerous sure. environment. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So... The next dimension is conscientiousness, and conscientious people are industrious, mm -hmm. and so they're guilty if they're not working. Mm. They have to work. Yeah, I have That's that. Me. You're like that. Me yeah, too. It's you brutal. Too. It's awful. It's brutal. I hate it. Yeah. Because I'm very yeah. self-aware of it. Like, um, I feel like I can never relax. Right. And I feel like yeah. I never got anything done. Right, right. Okay, so, so we figured out why that is, yeah. okay? The reason is, is you're conscientious, mm. so that that's associated often with, well, feelings of shame or guilt if you haven't got what you should have got done. Mm -hmm. And then if you're also high in negative emotion, then you worry about that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so that's, that, that can be rough. And so, and the last dimension is openness and openness is basically interest in ideas and creativity, essentially. Mm -hmm. And so if you take this test at understandmyself.com, it will tell you where you are in relationship to 10,000 other people mm. on those mm -hmm. dimensions. And it's useful for, we're going to make a couple's version of it so that you'll get a, re we haven't got it up yet. So you'll have a report saying, well, you know, you're really orderly and you're not. And so you're going to have tension in your relationship because yeah. the orderly person is always going to be annoyed by your disorderliness <laughs> and end up cleaning up after you all mm -hmm. the time. And so you're going to have to be aware of that because that's going to be, and you know, you're open and. Your partner isn't. Well, you're going to want to go to plays and movies and read books and discuss ideas, and they're not going to be interested in that at all. And, you know, you kind of think of those as opinions, but they're really deeply rooted. No, it sounds... So, are we doomed to, to just possess these characteristics that we hate about ourselves, even if we're self-aware of it? How, no, do you, how do you address these issues of self-improvement? Okay, well, people get more conscientious and more and less neurotic and more agreeable as they get older. Mm. So you could think about that perhaps as the development of wisdom. I also mm. think that you can, you can learn the opposite traits through practicing micro habits. So for example, in my clinical practice, I've often had introverted people who need to act in an extroverted way in order, say, to be successful lawyers because they have to go out and drum up business. They have to meet with people. Right. And they can learn the habits of an extroverted person, but they have mm. to learn them from the bottom up. Mm. It's, it's not natural to them. And if you're not very conscientious, for example, like a schedule is learning how to use a, a schedule mm -hmm. and then learning how to stick to it can be really useful as can making a life plan. I feel like I've so, gone through that with our YouTube channel and, and the podcast because I'm, I was usually not in front of the camera and I'm and very uncomfortable with it. 
And so I've learned how to be more extroverted, I think. Yeah. By, like, being on video and... Sheer will of force. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I've watched a number of your videos, and you're clearly more introverted than mm -hmm. Ethan, you know, yeah. and I, we, I can see the way, I can see it in your body language because you kind of pull back and <laughs> you're, you're more hesitant to jump into a conversation. Yeah. And, but, but, but you have a fair bit of positive emotion. You smile a lot. <laughs> so, so that's, you know, so, so that's, that might also make it somewhat easier. But mm -hmm. my, my guess is you're far lower in assertiveness than Ethan. So... See, that's interesting. <laughs> Yula can be pretty, she can be pretty scary. It's that Israeli in her. Yeah. But in public or in private? If it she, depends. Don't push her. Yeah. <laughs> it could be in public. Uh-huh. Yeah. Depends. Yeah, well, it'd be interesting. Would be in, see. I want to take the test. Because my <laughs> yeah. issue is like, I'm aware of my flaws. I'm aware of the things that drive me crazy. But I'm not really sure how to, how to improve it. Right. I don't know. I'm not. Maybe that's the problem is that I don't know how to instruct myself to 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 improve. Well, one of the things. OK, so I have this other program that's the future authoring program I mentioned. OK, so the way it works is that it first of all asks you to think about your life along six or seven dimensions. OK, so here here's the idea. Imagine you were treating yourself like someone you were taking care of, you know, someone you loved and you were taking care of. Okay, so you want the best for you, mm. whatever that is. So it's not like magic wishes. It's nothing like that. It's you're taking care of yourself like a responsible person. Okay, so then it asks you, write a, write a bit. Three to five years down the road, um, what do you want your friendship network to look like? How do you want your intimate relationship to be going? Or what should it look like? How are you going to stay educated? How are you going to handle temptations of drugs and alcohol? Are you going to keep yourself healthy mentally and physically? What are your career goals? And what are you going to do with life outside of work? Mm -hmm. you know? So if, if you could have what would be good for you, just what would that look like? Mm -hmm. Okay. People don't, aren't encouraged to take the time to think that through. And it really matters right. if you think it through. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. So then it says, okay, now you've warmed up. Write for 20 minutes about what your life could look like in three to five years if it was going the way that you wanted it to go. So it'd be good for you. It'd be good for you, good for your family, good for society. Like it'd be good. Mm. You need a vision. Mm. Okay. And then the next step is, okay, now imagine that you let your weaknesses and character flaws get the upper hand and like drive you into the ground. Mm. What does that look like in five years? Mm -hmm. So that's like a horrific vision, right? And so that's a good thing because now you've got something mm. to run away from. And so if you're anxious, having something bad to run away from is really motivating because you think, well, you know, like maybe I should watch what I eat. It's like, yeah, well, I'd look better. That's, that's not enough motivation. I'm going to be fat and really unhealthy and half dead in five years. It's like, okay, <laughs> that's not so good, right. you know, and so you can run towards the positive thing and run away from the negative mm -hmm. thing. And that, that increases your motivation. Right. And then in the next part, you're asked to make that into a detailed and articulated plan. And so that can help. Like you say, well, you're not sure what habits to change or, or, or what, what, what personality traits to transform. You got to kind of think about that in relationship to what you want. So, you know, if people come to me for clinical work, the first thing I want to find out is, okay, um, what do you think's wrong? Like, how are you suffering unnecessarily? And, mm -hmm. but more importantly... If your life was good, what would that look like? What are we aiming at here? Right. 
And so, and that's one of the most crucial things that you can ask yourself in life is what are you aiming at? And Mm. here, there's two reasons for that. One is your aim narrows the world and that reduces your anxiety. You know where you stand and where you're going. And so that calms you down and reduces your stress, helps you focus. The second thing is the positive emotion systems that make you enthusiastic and engaged. Like people think of reward as what happens when you achieve something. But that's not exactly right. Not with human beings. Most of the time we feel reward when or so engagement and, 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 and positive, like the positive desire to move forward in life when there's evidence that we're moving towards a valuable goal. So we're making progress. It's like, yes, we're making progress. There's a real neurochemical kick that comes along with that. It's the same system that cocaine affects and amphetamines. And so with rats, for example, you can get rats hooked on cocaine if they're alone in a cage. Mm. And they'll self-administer cocaine till, basically till they die. But if they're out doing rat things with their rat buddies, like they're not that interested in cocaine. Mm. So... So, and the reason I'm saying that is because like a rat who's out with his rat buddies doing rat things gets enough reward from that. So the drugs aren't that attractive. Mm. So part of the reason that people take drugs like cocaine is because they're not doing enough things that are deeply meaningful, you know? Mm. And so, but you don't get meaning unless you got a name because your, your nervous system is wired to give you a pat on the back when you're making progress towards your aim. Well, so you got to have a name. Mm-hmm. And like the aim should be high because otherwise why bother with it? But it should also be broken down into steps that you have a reasonably high probability of attaining. You know, with a kid, you want to say, well, you're trying to get your kid to develop. You, you don't give them an impossible task. You give them a task that's slightly harder than that which they can already do, mm-hmm. right? And so they're engaged by that. Maybe they're a little anxious about it, but they master it and they've, they've expanded their domain of competence. It's mm-hmm. no game. It's a big deal to do that. And mm-hmm. that kids love that. that. That's where you learn in that zone, you know, where you're pushing yourself just a little bit beyond where you are. And so one of the things that you can do that helps focus you and also control your stress is to really, really consciously think through and articulate your aims. Mm. And the, this program does that for people. And I would also say, if people are interested in, that's also discounted for you guys, by the way, that you should do a bad job of it. And the reason I'm saying that is because you don't want to be perfectionistic about this. You're not going to be right anyways. You're going to be righter than you are now. Because what do you know? You take a few steps forward six months from now, you're not going to be in the same place. And so your vision's going to change a little bit. Mm-hmm. So there's no sense getting obsessive about your goal. But it, it really is worthwhile to understand what it is that you're aiming at. People are aiming creatures. That's right. why we look at each other's eyes, mm-hmm. right? That's why you have whites in your eyes, actually. And so that I can see where they're pointing so I can understand mm-hmm. what you're up to. So we're aiming creatures. So... This is something that I think generally people don't think about, stuff like this. And my next question for you is it seems that more and more in today's society and just the societies in the world today, people are more depressed, more anxious, more suicidal than than ever before. Is that a symptom of something unusual going on in our society? Is it just people that are more comfortable talking about it now? Um, what What is it? Why are, why are so it's many good, people depressed? It's a good question. It's a good question. I... I <sighs> I think at least part of it is 
the complexity of our society. It isn't certain how the future is going to lay itself out. And it isn't certain that what you knew in the past is going to be sufficient for you to, mm. to move forward into the future. So there's lots of opportunity, but it's very complex. And it's not easy to keep up in our <coughs> world. You know, like if you look around the world, you might think, well, the happiest people are those where the high, standard of living is the highest. That's actually not the case. Right. And you think, okay, but why wouldn't that be the case? It's like, you want, what do you want? Malaria and death at 40? Obviously not. But then you think, okay, what's the price you pay for a high standard of living? Well, that's easy. You virtually always sacrifice the present for the future. You're always working. Mm -hmm. I mean, you guys, you know, I mean, you know, you've, you're fairly influential and you've got this good thing going, but like, it could crash at a moment's notice. You better keep your eye on it. And, and, and every day you're thinking, okay, this has to be done and this has to be done and this has to be done. And it's so, it pays off. I mean, you have a nice studio and, and, and I would presume a reasonably comfortable life, mm -hmm. but it's not like you're not running on a treadmill to keep that going. And so that's, that's security and it's health, but it isn't necessarily happiness. And it's certainly not necessarily freedom from anxiety. Sure. And I would say, most people in the modern world, weirdly enough, have far too much to do. You know, two mm -hmm. career families and a couple of kids. It's like, man, you're, you're done. That's 60 hours a week of flat out work. Yep. So, and that can be too much. And then I also think because our society is philosophically unstable, and that's sort of reflected in this polarization, is that People are doubtful about whether their lives have any meaning, for mm. example. You know, what's, why bother? What's the use of it? Who cares? It's like, what difference is it going to make in a million years, you know? And that's, life is hard. And if you just have a nihilistic viewpoint, then it's easy to be swamped by doubts and, and existential angst and all of that. And, and like, I think that's a mistake because I think that your life, your life can be very meaningful, it's proportionate to the responsibility that you take on. And mm -hmm. you can learn that by watching when you're engaged in the world, you know, and, and what works to sort of protect you from feelings of isolation and doom. Uh, you know, and a lot of the lectures I have on YouTube are about exactly that. Mm -hmm. So, so I think part of it is the complexity of the modern world. Yeah. I also can't shake the sneaking suspicion that it has something to do with our diet. Really? Well, you know, I saw this. We know that obesity is like skyrocketing. Yeah. Okay. So, and probably the reason for that, it's not exactly certain. There might be complicated reasons for it, but certainly one of the reasons is that people eat far too many carbohydrates. Right. You know, I saw this video from World War II um, about, about, and in, in one of the scenes, they showed all these men in New York lining up to be inducted. And it's like, you know, 20 blocks of guys with no shirts on mm -hmm. standing in line to be inducted. Every single one of them was <laughs> bone thin. Do you Every think, single do you think one. it's the insecurity and the negative feelings that come with being overweight or the actual no, food? No, no, I think there's something wrong with what we're eating. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And yeah, I mean, there's more and more evidence that dietary sensitivity, for example, is linked to conditions like schizophrenia. Really? And so, yes. Watch yes. out for that bread, y'all. Well, and also your gut bacteria turns out, which you have a lot of, you have about a hundred times more bacterial cells in your body than human cells, mm. which is really quite a freaky thing to think about. L luckily, they're quite tiny because yes. otherwise you'd be like a giant amoeba, yes. you know, but the, the gut biome produces a lot of neurochemicals 
And so it does play an integral role in the regulation of your mood, mm. which is also a very strange thing. I've been following so, that, just the how bacteria is starting to be, like play more in human health, like mm-hmm. probiotics and stuff like this can regulate your mood. Mm-hmm. That's so mm-hmm. freaky. Yeah, it is. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, and you know, um, one possibility is that, well, let's say you eat a lot of carbohydrates and sugar. Okay, so what happens is that you grow bacteria in your gut that right. really like carbohydrates and sugar. Right. Well, so then you think, well, I'm always having cravings for carbohydrates and sugar. It's mm-hmm. like you're having the cravings, you think. Well, maybe not. Maybe what's happened is that, you know, through a Darwinian process, you've encouraged the growth of bacteria that really like sugar and carbohydrates. And you think that same bacteria is messing with people's mood? Maybe. Yes. And it's also messing with their cravings. That's... Mm. I mean, we're really walking oceans, you know, like we're big creatures. I mean, we're not big compared to like a Douglas fir or... Or, or the sun, yeah, but like yeah, sure. we're pretty big creatures and, yeah. and we are liquid. Most of us is liquid. Yeah. And, you know, if you saturate yourself with carbohydrates and sugar, then you hmm. you are invaded by the bacteria that live on those things. Hmm. And so that's not necessarily so good for you. Hmm. Let me ask you another question here. Uh, you're, you're happily married. Yes. You've been married for, for a long time. I've known my wife for 47 years. Wow. We've been friends for 47 years, but wow. I've been married for just about 30. Yeah. Wow. Well, congratulations on yeah. that. Lucky me. Yeah, lucky. <laughs> Not so lucky her, but, <laughs> but lucky me anyways. So um, people are getting divorced, you know, and I feel like people are having a hard time finding each other now. When I was dating, Tinder wasn't a thing. I mean, mm-hmm. the internet for smartphones wasn't really a thing. You, you, you made physical connections with people. And I feel like people are having a harder time finding each other. I was re- listening like in Japan, people, there's like almost no relationships. People aren't having kids. People aren't, they're all like superficial relationships they're having. Yeah, the situation in Japan is very strange. Very bizarre stuff. Yeah, it's very strange. So what advice can you give to people who are looking to have a strong and meaningful and lasting relationship with someone? Well, the, the first thing is to decide if that is really what you want. Is that you know, fair, do you think, to say, I don't, I don't, I want to be single forever? Do you think that's realistic or fair assessment of oneself? Um, I think that that's, for most people, a pathway to insanity. Yeah. You know, the psychoanalysts used to think that, and we all think this way in some ways, that you're sane because you're well put together. In Your psyche is well structured, right? It's internal, somehow inside your head. Mm. But, and there's some truth in that, but here's a, Here's a more accurate viewpoint, I think. You outsource most of your sanity because it's too complicated. And so what you do is your parents raise you to be vaguely acceptable to other people. (laughs) And then you're surrounded by other people your whole life. And then every time you go off the rails a little bit, even just a little bit, people signal to you. Like you make a joke, it's not that funny and people don't (laughs) laugh. And you think, oh, well, you know, I should probably rethink my sense of humor a little bit or pay more attention or mm. you tell a rambling story and you notice that everyone's like <laughs> lost in the distance. And right. So if you're civilized enough so that people don't shun you and you have people around you, then they're going to be always telling you how to not be too insane. Mm. Well, if you're alone, you drift, right. you drift, right, right. you know, and you'll drift in the direction of your biggest weakness. Mm. And so, you know, there are some people Maybe they're introverted and disagreeable. They're, they're not cut out for a lot of social contact. 
but we're social animals, man, right to the core. Sure. And, and it's a suboptimal solution for, for the vast majority of people. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that people are having a harder time finding, like, let's call them more permanent relationships is because it's become increasingly easy to have fleeting, casual, sexual relationships. I mean, mm-hmm. Tinder is a revolution, right? It's a revolution in sexual behavior. And it's certainly not obvious that it's a is one it a, that's... Is it a social thing? Is it just technology? Is this what people want to be doing? Because you, th- you think the it's fleeting... Easier yeah. In some ways. But it, the technology has enabled this fleeting sexual oh, activity. Oh, definitely. Okay. Definitely. And, and that's... But, we, we don't want to underestimate how radical a technology that is. That's right. especially... Especially for men. I do feel that deep down that all these people, men and women alike, are always longing for something more meaningful. Well, I think I think that that's generally the case. I mean, you know, part of the reason for a relationship is sexual contact, obviously. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. that's that – you, you don't necessarily need a relationship for that. But that's not the reason to, to be with someone, the reason to be some, with someone. Well, there's a lot of them. So one is – well, kids who have two parents do far better, period. The read data on that is crystal clear. It doesn't mean that there aren't many single parents who struggle to do a wonderful job. Yeah. That's not the same thing. It's an average issue. So you need – plus, it's a lot of work to have <coughs> kids. You know, you kind of need to divide up the labor, especially in the first year or two, you know, because the woman is completely overwhelmed in the first year and she needs somebody around to take care of her while she's taking care of the kid fundamentally, or at least that's the way it looks to me. So, so there's that. You need a stable basis for children and it takes them a long time to mature and they need to learn that relationships are trustworthy, right? Mm. So there's utility and stability there. But then also you kind of want to tangle your life together with someone, you know, because you have someone to... Well, it's like two ropes that are tangled together. It's stronger, especially during times of weakness. And mm. you have two brains instead of one. And that actually turns out to be really helpful when sure. things mm-hmm. are complicated. And, and it builds a solidity into your life and a, and, a, and a reality into your life to have someone who's along with you on this very long voyage. And so I think that deepens your life in a way that isn't really possible with fragmentary relationships as a single person. Definitely. And then there's more to it than that. It's like, I think of wrestling. There's this scene in the Old Testament where Jacob wrestles with an angel. He's wrestling with God, actually, which is quite an interesting. That's what Israel means, right? Wrestling with God. Mm. Yeah, that just blew me away when I learned it. It's so is that, that true? The, the true people in of Hebrew? Israel are those who wrestle with God. Huh. Wrestle yeah, with God. it's not believe exactly. It's a whole different thing, man. It's a whole different thing. And Isn't so, it like fear from God, what it means? I, that's what I thought. Well, it, it, it from, from, from the work I did in the last couple of months looking at this, huh. and I looked in, into it quite deeply, it does mean wrestling, essentially. And it does derive from that scene in the Old Testament where Jacob wrestles with God. That's when he gets the name Israel. Hmm. And it, his hip is dislocated, right, permanently. He has a permanent limp after that. It's no joke. But I think of marriage the same way. Like people mm. think, well, they lived happily ever after. It's like, that's not what you want in a marriage. Yeah. You want someone to contend with, mm. you know, because you learn through that wrestling, you know, sure. like you learn where you're an idiot and where you should stop <coughs> being and, mm. and vice versa. Yeah. So there's a, that's the spiritual aspect of marriage. It's, 
It's the fact that you have to contend with someone under all sorts of circumstances theoretically is a – what would you say? It's a, it's a manner of promoting psychological or you could say spiritual growth and it's genuine. Mm. You know, that's why marriage is a sacrament in most human communities, right? It's, it's stamped both by the state and by the sacred authorities because it's not just a physiological union. That's what animals do and I mean – there's nothing wrong with the physiological union, but it, it has to be placed in the context of everything else a human being is. And I do think it's dreadful for people not to have that. And Do you think it's, it's, it's become harder for people to have meaningful, lasting relationships, or has it always been this hard? I feel like um, – I thank God that I'm not dating now because I feel like it must – it seems like it's miserable out there right now. Well, it's to hard. try to meet people. It is hard for although you know it's easier to meet people because there's more ways of meeting them. Right. But the ways of meeting them is are more shallow. Mm-hmm. My in my clinical practice, I would say that the rise of the internet dating option has actually overall been good for people who are looking for a partner. Now there is some speculation and some evidence that it lowers the transaction price of separation and divorce, Hmm. you know, because one of the reasons you don't separate or you don't get divorced is like, well, are you going to find someone else? And if it's easier to find someone else, then perhaps you're more tempted to sever the relationship. So maybe you lose in one place where you gain in the other. But I think there are different kinds of hard that it is. You know, it's hard for couples to figure out how to manage two careers. Hmm. It's hard for women to figure out how to get educated and get their career launched at the same time that they're finding a partner and having kids because women have this tight time frame. You know, I mean, they've got to get a lot done by the time they're mid thirties for sure. And so it's, it's not much time, you know, it's like 15 years really from the time you're an adult. It's, Mm. you better get at it. It's not very long. So I think there are new challenges that have arisen Mm. that weren't there for previous generations, but I, but previous generations had it hard in other ways. That's very so, true, yeah. Like dying like they at died. 50. Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, <laughs> or in childbirth, like the, yeah. for example. I feel like people also need to like, understand how to make a relationship work. Like It's not just magic. You need to kind of put in the work to make it work. It's hard. You need it's to put in effort and yeah. compromise a lot of times. On like, If you live by yourself, you can do everything the way you would want. Yeah. If you live with someone else, then... There's compromises to make. Yes. But in the long picture, it's better for you. Well, that's that's it. That's it. There's sacrifices to be made in the short term. Yeah. You know, and I mean, people have to. The effort issue is like, well, when you're in love with someone, you're going to organize your schedule and make them a priority. And, you know, that's in some ways a fleeting state, although it's not necessarily as fleeting as people think it is. But whatever. It's, it's obviously a priority. And then you get married and, you know, you kind of get accustomed to having each other around. And then everything else is more important and the relationship drifts to the bottom. And then people get dissatisfied and they start looking for excitement and adventure otherwise. Well, mm-hmm. you can't do that. You have to prioritize the relationship. Mm-hmm. Like my observation clinically has been for a couple to maintain their relationship without it deteriorating. They have to spend 90 minutes a week together talking about their lives, hmm. about how the house is run, about what they've all been doing to keep mm-hmm. their stories caught up, right? That's so, not really even that much. By no, it's yeah. not. You it's know. not. It's not that much. Yeah. But, but, and which is a good thing. You can actually do it. And then they need to spend at least one 
time having a date and two is better. One is necessary. Two is better. You can't aim for a lot more than that because, you know, life is very busy and if it's going to be sustainable, it has to be realistic, but they need to make time for each other twice a week and, and talk in like in a non-romantic way, Mm -hmm. just practically about the domestic economy and about everything that's going on. And that keeps people tied to each other and updated. And so that's sort of your minimal commitment level if you don't want things to deteriorate. So, and, and that makes sense. I love the, I love hearing you put these like abstract things into like measurable, tangible things, like 90 minutes talking a day to week. It's hard to materialize. Like, I'm used these to feelings. this stuff being kind of like scams, like five steps to success. <laughs> mm-hmm. Just follow these five steps and you'll make it. But it's actually, this is the first time that I hear actual steps that you can really take. And it makes sense in my head that it would really improve something simple. You know? mm-hmm. This is mm-hmm. the study of psychology, right? I mean, this is what you and your colleagues do, or is this... Well, part I, of I it... I don't know any... I've never talked to a, to a psychologist. Well, I mean, I, yeah. I'm, I'm trained psychoanalytically. Mm. I did most of that training myself, but also behaviorally. And I was technically trained as a cognitive behavioral psychologist. And what they do is they take large problems mm. and break them down into small problems that can be solved and measured. And yeah, so, I love it. And, and, and it, it's great. And it goes back to what you're saying about the complexity of, of society. I feel like hearing you put these really tan- intangible problems or even feelings into something measurable is relieving. Yeah, you want to break it down into something simple and accomplishable. Like, let's say you want to write a book. It's okay. How do, how do you go about writing a book? Well, the first thing you do is decide how much time you can steal of your own and get away with it on a regular basis. And you might think, well, I'll wait till I have eight hours of unbroken time and I'll sit down and write. It's like, no, you won't. First of all, you're never going to have eight hours of unbroken time. That's never going to happen, especially as you get older and take on more responsibilities. And you don't have the discipline for that anyway. So Mm -hmm. that's not going to happen. It's like, you want to write a book? Start by stealing half an hour a day. Make it religious. Sit there for half an hour. Even if you don't write anything, you should be able to get at least a sentence or two out. Well, let's say you write half a paragraph a day. Okay, so then we can do the arithmetic. Uh, so that's a paragraph every two days or three paragraphs a week. So let's call that a page. Well, in a year, you've got 50 pages. All right, well, it's, yeah, that's, that's not bad. It's a quarter of a book, <laughs> yeah. you know. And maybe once you've mastered the half an hour, you can extend it to an hour. You know, you're not going to get much past 90 minutes because your time isn't exactly your own. Other people are taking it all the time, especially Mm -hmm. if you're productive. You have to fight like a junkyard dog to get your own time. (laughs) But so one of the things you can do is that if you have an aim of some sort, you want to break it down to what's necessary in the day and then iterate that. And the other thing I tell my clients, for example, is like, we also have a bad idea about what's important in our lives. You think, well, this vacation, man, this is going to be a once in a lifetime trip. It's like, well, then who cares? It's two weeks out of your life. It's irrelevant. Here's what's relevant. You sit down and you have dinner with your family or, or your partner every day. All right. So we'll do the math on that. That's easy. Let's say it's an hour and a half, including cooking time. Let's say it's kind of miserable. You know, you're angry in the kitchen. The food isn't that great. One of you re- watches the damn cell phone and the other sort of fumes. 
That's your dinner. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's like, okay, we'll do the mathematics. So that's 90 minutes a day. So in a week, that's seven times. So that's seven hours and seven and a half. So that's, let's say 10 hours, 11 hours. Okay. 40 hours a a month, Um, 480 hours a year. Okay. So that's 12 work weeks, right? That's three months. You're spending three months of work weeks being miserable with each other at dinner time. That's a really bad idea. It's a seriously bad idea. It's like, fix that. Hmm. You're going to have to fight about it. It's like, we're not having that much fun at dinner time. It's like, well, why not? Well, I don't like being in the kitchen. You don't appreciate it or whatever it is. Like, because there's tension in kitchens, man. There's no doubt about that. It's like, get that right. Those things you do every single day that repeat, that's your life, man. Hmm. So when you think, well, that's just mundane, that's just day-to-day stuff. It's like, yeah. That's the shit that matters. Well, all you have to do is the arithmetic. I had a client who was fighting with his kid, trying to get him to go to bed. You know, and the average adult only spends, parent only spends about 20 minutes of one-on-one time with their kid a day. Hmm. Right. Very interesting thing to know. It's like, okay, so he's spending, I say, how long does it take you to get your son to go to bed? 45 minutes. Is it pleasant? It's like, No. It's not pleasant for him. It's not pleasant for me. Let's do the math. We'll call it an hour. Seven hours a week. It's 28 hours a month. All right? So we'll call that 30. 360 hours a year. It's nine 40-hour work weeks. You're spending two and a half months fighting with your son every year. You think you're going to like him? You think he's going to like you? It's like, no. Fix that. Fix it. It's every day. And so it makes your life miserable, those things. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's another thing is to... Your life is a repetition of days. And so it's really important to get the days right and then repeat them. Mm. And so a schedule can help with that too. It's like, okay, you schedule in the things you have to do so that your life doesn't get worse. Those are responsibilities. And then schedule in the things that you would like to do. Mm. Use the schedule as if it's your friend and not your tyrant. Mm-hmm. That's really useful. And, and computer schedules, are they're great for that. Yeah. But you've got to think, this is not my tyrannical father standing in front of me with a big whip, (laughs) punishing me every time I make a mistake. That's not what this schedule is. It's Mm. my friend who's saying, let's have a really good day tomorrow. Mm. And that would be, well, we better get the mess out of the way a little bit because it'll just compound and that's not good. But let's throw some things in there that might make life worth living a little bit. So how do people know if they should talk to a psychiatrist or a psychologist? Suicidal thoughts, that's a good one. Okay, yeah, that's an easy indicator. Well, but we, we could be specific about that. Okay, because well, let's I'm, say I'm, someone I'm comes... I'm thinking more about like an uh, ordinary guy. He's having trouble. He's not, he's not close to killing himself, but he's, he's stressed out. He's anxious. He's depressed. Small things irritate him. Um, or, 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 or to any well, degree one of, of them, that, right? Okay, like, well, one of them I would say is like, Let's say you have a bunch of memories from your past that are associated with emotional pain and they keep recurring. That's a good example because what that means is that you have... Some trauma. Yeah, well, we could define that even. So you feel negative emotion when you lay out a a desire in the world and it doesn't manifest itself, right? So you're disappointed. Okay, so what does it mean? It means you didn't know how to master that place and time. So maybe you were bullied in high school, and it means you didn't know how to socialize with people properly. And now you're afraid of people. 
And so this thoughts are always coming back about how you were bullied in high school and how terrible that was. And it's like, why are the thoughts coming back? And the reason is, is that the systems that produce anxiety are regarding your inability as a threat. They're saying, there's a threat, there's a threat, there's a threat. You don't know how to deal with people. There's a threat. Mm. And it's never going to go away because it's an alarm system. It's, it's trying to tell you about threats. And so then what you have to do, and you can do this with a therapist, is to figure out, okay, how did all that bullying come about? What, if anything, did I do to make myself vulnerable or what situation made me vulnerable? How should I interpret that and then change my perceptions and actions so that that isn't likely to happen in the future ever again? Mm. And then that'll go away because... People think the purpose of memory is to represent the past. That's wrong. The purpose of memory is to stop you from doing the same stupid things over and over. Mm, right. So, yeah, well, of course, right? Why remember the past? So the future is better. That's why. And so if you have a lot of things about, if you're living in the past and you're plagued by things, mm. then you're stuck back there in some ways. You haven't mind the experience for everything that it could teach you. And, mm -hmm. and, you're, and so it's, it's, when you have a bad experience, your body reacts first, and then your emotions react, and then you think about it. But sometimes it never gets past your body or your emotions. It's just, it never gets processed past then. You, you're molested as a kid. It's like, how the hell are you going to think about that when you're a kid? Your uncle sexually molests you. It's like this person who I'm supposed to trust, who's an adult, which I will be at some point, has done this terrible thing that I don't understand that I have to keep secret. You think you're going to think about that when you're four? Mm. You can't even think about that when you're 30. Mm -hmm. So it's like stuck in, as a, an experience of terror. It's stuck there. Mm. And then maybe, you know, you're 25 or 26 and you're kind of plagued by this. You got to go back and you got to think, okay... This is, it's a terrible thing because you need to develop a philosophy of evil to deal with something like that. It's like people are malevolent. Right. And so are you. And that's a rough thing to learn, but you better learn it because you'll be able to orient yourself in the world properly then, even though it's terrifying. So, is, is there a way for people with trauma like that, a lot of people can't afford a therapist. It's a luxury. Yeah. How, is it possible for people to work through these things on their own? Well, you know... This system that I told you about, the, the future authoring program, is part of a package. We, we built this. I'm talking about this because we built this thing precisely for that reason. Because mm -hmm. we were thinking, my partner is a professor at McGill University and a former student of mine who has a, he has an engineering degree from MIT and a PhD from Harvard. We've been working on this stuff a long time. Mm -hmm. So there's a self, past authoring program that's part of this. And so what it does is ask you to break your life up into six periods, epochs, and then to write out the most powerful emotional experiences that you had during those times, positive mm -hmm. or negative. And then if they're negative, to do a causal analysis. It's like, okay, you had this bad experience. You're still carrying some weight from that. Why did it happen? Well, I was four. I was little. The six-year-olds were beating me up. It's like, okay, you're not four anymore. The six-year-olds aren't around after you. It's mm -hmm. probably not relevant anymore. Because mm -hmm. it'll ask you that too. You can do an awful lot by writing down what happened to you and thinking it through. And it's inexpensive, right? It's mm -hmm. the program is, it's nominally, it has a nominal price fundamentally. And so there's good evidence that doing that kind of writing mm -hmm. can, can free you up. Mm -hmm. And it's partly because when a, like, let's say your uncle molests you. Okay, what does that mean exactly? What does it signify about the nature of humanity and about the nature of the world? 
Well, it's something unspeakably terrible. So you don't speak of it. And so it's everything. It's horror. Like it's, it's unspeakable horror. Then you write about it. It's like, well, it's, I'm no longer a little kid. Okay, it's not that. I'm no longer defenseless. It's not that. Well, people can be malevolent, but everyone isn't that way. It's not that. Mm. And you trim it down until it's, it's still awful, right? It's still a bitter poison pill, but it's little and pointed instead of huge and amorphous. And you may find that you can tolerate that, mm. you know, because people are pretty damn tough, but you can't tolerate in its amorphous form. <coughs> so you, you, you specify and analyze and, and do a causal and, and well, the analysis is a causal analysis. And then that'll free you up. It'll free you up from that. Because your brain wants to know, you fell in a hole once. That wasn't good. Do you know how to walk around that <laughs> hole now? And if the answer is yes, then the anxiety system says, no problem. The hole's still there, but you know how to walk around it, man. You don't have to worry about the hole anymore. So, and writing about your past can really help mm. with that. And I would also say with that program, you do a bad job. You sketch it out. You do it over multiple days. You, you, and you take, because it also helps to sleep in between periods of writing, because it, mm, it helps you sure. consolidate what you're, what you're, um, what you're learning, because mm. your brain has to reorganize as you re, and so I'll tell you a story about this. So I had a client once and she came in and she had been sexually abused by her older brother. And she told me this story and I had a vision in my imagination of what this was. I thought of her as like six, seven years old, something like that. Her older brother being like 16 or 17. And, uh, you know, the whole horror show. And I said, well, how old were you? And she said, well, I was four. And I said, okay, how old was your brother? Six. Hmm. And I thought she was about 29. And I said, okay, look, we're going to, we're going to take this memory apart a little bit. It's like you, I told her how I imagined her story when she first told it to me. I said, hmm. look, like I thought of you as being this little creature who was menaced by like an adolescent, an adult, hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and, and. So you were powerless, completely powerless, and, and the, uh, the adult had intent. But mm. what you're telling me is a story of two very badly supervised children. Mm. I said, when was the last time you saw a six-year-old? She said, oh, I know what six-year-olds are like. Okay, think about that. Mm. Well, okay, so she walked in as the abuse victim of her older brother, and she walked out knowing that her brother and her were very badly supervised as children. It's funny because you think, well, the past is fixed. It's over. It's like, Mm. yes and no. And she told me in the session, you know, that that was a much more tolerable memory. It made it, it put it into perspective, you know, and it also took her out of the victim mode to some degree because she was no longer, you know, cowering four-year-old. And a six-year-old is a lot bigger than a four-year-old, make no mistake about it. But a six-year-old is like, they're six. They're, you know, they're relatively blameless. Yes, there's that. Yeah. Well, yeah, they should be supervised. I yeah. mean, a six-year-old yeah. <laughs> can be mean, but sure, if but... they're if they're engaging in sexual behavior, like you got to think that there's a little bit lacking in terms of parental Absolutely. supervision. Yeah. You know, I mean, they'll play doctor and all that, but you kind of got to keep an eye on your kids. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you, so, uh, with your training, do you just see mental illness everywhere? Do you do you just diag- do you can you help just diagnosing people? When you're walking around, listening, getting to know people, like what, how was the world through your lens? Do you have like an X-ray your... vision? Of... Well, <laughs> yeah, I would like... say that that the world's a miraculous place from my perspective, and here's why: it is almost impossible to find anyone who who. Okay, so imagine here are the three conditions: 
you've got a mental illness, you have a physical illness, or someone who's close to you has a mental illness or a physical illness. It's like the probability that that's true of you right now is very high. And if it isn't true of you right now, in the next 10 years, it's virtually certain. Mm. And so I see damaged people walking around everywhere. Mm. And the ones that aren't damaged live with damaged people, you know. Mm. And, and, but they go to work. They do their job. Some of them do heroic things. They work in palliative care wards. They work in emergency wards. They, they work in funeral parlors, you know. And they go to their damn job despite the fact that they're carrying these heavy weights. And so I don't see so much like mental illness everywhere as a miracle that all of this mm. ever works. <laughs> because people have it rough, man. You know, and I'll, let, let me tell you a story. This is, this is a cool story. This just blew me away. So I had this client years ago, and she had been in this hospital called the Douglas Hospital, a very big psychiatric hospital, as big as a university. And mm. it was back before the invention of, the hospital was established before the invention of um, drugs to cure or to control schizophrenia and so on. And there were people left in the Douglas Hospital that I was there that couldn't have been deinstitutionalized, and there were tunnels underneath the hospital linking the buildings together. Hmm. And I took my brother, who wasn't familiar with this sort of thing, down into those tunnels one day, and I don't think he ever forgot it. It was like, it was like, those people were so ruined. They were like photographs by Diane Arbus or by uh, she she photographed the dwarves and all sorts of strange people for years, mm -hmm. or something by Hieronymus Bosch. Like it was really extreme. He was really shocked. Anyways, this client had been in the hospital from time to time and mm. she, she looked like a street person and she was so shy that she couldn't come up to you without going like this. She was mm. basically bowing over with her eyes covered as if there was light emanating from you and she couldn't tolerate it. And mm. we were trying to get her to not act like that because people like found it strange and it obviously, and it made it difficult for her to have any sort of normal human relationships. But that isn't why she came for therapy. So, okay, so I, I got to know her a little bit, and I was trying to teach her how to not be, um, you know, stand up a bit and learn how to look people in the eyes and so on. But she didn't have much patience for that. And she told me a little bit about her life. And she wasn't very bright, and she wasn't very attractive, and she wasn't very educated, and she wasn't very rich. Um, she had it rough, but it was worse than that. Her aunt was dying at home and she had an alcoholic schizophrenic boyfriend who was always like scaring her to death with tales about the devil. It's like she had a rough life, man. So, and then she told me why she had actually come and she had been in the Douglas hospital and seen these other people who were even more ruined than her, hard, hard to believe. And she had this dog that she had at home and she liked to walk the dog and she liked the dog and she thought, I could go into the ward and I could take some of these people out who are in there who are worse off than me and we could go for a walk with the dog. Mm. And so she was trying to find someone in the hospital who would listen, who would allow her permission to bring these, one of these inpatients out and walk them around with her dog. And when she told me that story, I just about fell over. It's like, mm. like, what do you say about something like that? You know, she, she, she had it rough, man. And she still was able to look outside herself and find someone who was worse and then try to think of something good to do for them. And then to put a fair bit of effort, especially given that she was so damn shy, she yeah. couldn't even look at you. Mm. She'd go to the hospital to try to find permission. Man, it just blew me away. You know, uh, 
So, you know, that's partly when I learned that there wasn't much of a relationship between ethics and intelligence. And you never know when you're seeing a good person. Like, you just don't know. It was very very affecting experience. Mm. So that's kind of what I see when I look out at the world. And it's, it, this is also why I don't like the political polarization now, because, especially at the moment, especially on the radical left, because the, they, they, those people, they strike me as so ungrateful. It's like they don't understand that the world isn't being run by mighty tyrants who ru- rule the patriarchy, but by mostly by people who, like I have a... I, I've dealt with very high achieving people in my life because and and people on the other end of the spectrum as well because I've done business consulting and worked with lawyers to help them improve the productivity of their practice. Mm. People who are really performing highly and you get to know them and you find out, well, you know, their their father has Alzheimer's disease and they have a son with a serious mental illness and their wife has just had a hip replacement and is chronic pain and it's like that's your patriarchy for you right there, you know, Mm. and – you got to be grateful that all these damaged people are going out there and I have another story about this. This guy is a line worker for a power company and he had a bad accident and really hurt him. And he was working with a friend of his who had Parkinson's and like they were both hurt enough so they couldn't do their job singly, but they would climb up the poles together and one of them could do what the other one couldn't and so they could work. It's like, really, that's, you're going out there. It's, that's a rough job in Canada. It's bloody cold up there. You know, and despite the fact that they were half ruined, you know, they went to work mm. and they kept the damn power on. Yeah. And it's like, that's what I see when I look at the world. Mm. So. Well, on that rel- on that inspiring note, that was uplifting. I don't want to. I want to keep you here too long. I want to end on a nice note. But uh, I'll, I'll ask you one more question. Sure. I thought it was interesting. So something one of the uh, fans had posted. What's one piece of advice that you would have given your sixteen-year-old self? Hmm. What's one piece of advice I would have? Given? So something you've learned in adulthood that you wish you could translate to someone coming through adolescence to adulthood. Don't be so high and mighty that you don't take advantage of the humble opportunities that are granted to you. When I look back, I didn't like school Hmm. at all. Uh, You might say I hated it. Hmm. And I've thought a lot about that, you know, because I thought, well, there were reasons, you know, I was a very fast reader. I could get through the books that were given to us in English class, generally in the first day. Mm. And that wasn't really appreciated, I would say. Mm. But there were things, and I was bored a lot as a teenager and and got into a reasonable amount of trouble, not an unreasonable amount, but but then, you know, there were sports teams and there were attempts to organize plays and there were things that I didn't do that I could have that would have made my life better but I was too cynical, maybe, to take full advantage of them. And, like, I did work when I was a kid. I worked in restaurants as a dishwasher, short order cook, that sort of thing. That was a really good decision. I think my fondest memories in some ways of my adolescence are memories of working in the restaurant. Hmm. But don't, like, life is very difficult. and, And in order to thrive with this difficult life, 
if an opportunity is presented to you, be, you shouldn't be so arrogant that you dismiss it. Mm-hmm. And it's really easy to be arrogant as a teenager, especially if you're smart, because you think, well, I'm smarter than everybody else. It's like, actually, no, there's mm-hmm. lots of people that are a lot smarter than you. You just haven't met them yet. Mm-hmm. And, and you're not as smart as you think you are. Besides, right. and other people aren't as dumb as you think they are either. There's different but kinds of smart. There, there certainly is. Yes, and wise beats smart. Mm. So I would say if you're 16 and your life isn't so happy, it's like look around and see if there are opportunities that people are granting you, mm. even imperfect opportunities because they're going to be imperfect, that you could exploit, let's say, in the proper way and, mm. and learn and grow. I had this teacher, Ada Paul. She's dead now. I really liked her in grade four. She was an organist at the church. And when I was 14, 15, she offered to teach me how to play the organ. And it was a big organ, you know. And I, for a variety of reasons, wasn't really that into the idea. And so I kind of went. And then a couple of times I skipped it. And it just sort of fell apart, you know. And Which was pretty rude of me, obviously, because she went out of her way to offer this. And, like, that's a good example because... Like, it wasn't cool to play the organ. Mm-hmm. It wasn't cool to do any... I don't know what it was like when you grew up. When I grew up, it wasn't cool to do anything. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah, still like it's that out there. True. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, like, doing anything wasn't yeah. cool. Right. It's like, well, it wouldn't have been so bad to learn to play the organ. Yeah. You know? And also so, to learn from, from a, a, you know, someone who, with more experience than you. To yeah, share well, an experience and she, with them. Yeah, well, it was actually someone yeah. who cared for me somewhat and who right. was really a great person. She was a great teacher. Like, I really liked Ada Paul. She was... And I, be, I betrayed her trust, you know? It's mm-hmm. like, that wasn't very bright. I think we all have memories like that oh, as yeah. kids, you know? Yeah, yeah. But well, I, think, I think that advice is good to yeah. even young adults, even to adults, really, to pause and appreciate the opportunities and the, the doors that are always open to them well, here's and an, the experiences that are always available. Well, here's an idea. Yeah. So life is brutal. And what you have to set against that is possibility. Mm. And you might say, well... Life is so brutal that you have to utilize all the possibility that comes your way. You know, so an opportunity manifests itself and you turn it down. You ignore it. You let it drift away. It's like that's one thing that you had against the horror of existence that you let go of. Mm -hmm. You let go of 10 of those things, man. You're on the street. Right. And it's no fun there. And it doesn't get better. Mm. And so... There is a possibility that if you utilized all the possibility that was offered to you, mm. that your life would be straight and clean and engaging and acceptable and positive. Mm. And that's worth finding out if that's the case, because yeah. it might be true. Well, I think that's wonderful advice. Be adventurous. Take a shot. <laughs> I don't know if the, there's this one thing that our fans love. Sometimes it's <laughs> so ridiculous. <laughs> We ask all of our guests if they have ghost stories, supernatural experiences, UFO sightings, anything like that. You don't need to get too deep. And if if you don't, you can say no. That's perfectly fine. But do you have any supernatural experiences? Mm -hmm. You do? All right. (laughs) You do. Do you mind sharing it? I have two. Okay. I've got to figure out which. I'll share you the one that's funnier, I think. Okay. Okay. So I went to um, Nashville Mm. and to a scientific conference and I looked online to uh to book a hotel booked a hotel and then I went down to Nashville and uh, my former graduate advisor was coming 
staying in the same hotel, but he didn't come with me. And a student of mine who uh, had become a professor was also coming into town. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, so I got to this hotel, and I didn't know that Nashville, that had been hollowed out, like the downtown wasn't good. Mm. There were lots of abandoned buildings. It was pretty crime-ridden, mm. not a fun place. They're trying to put it back together, but the hotel that I'd rented was sort of in the middle of this, and it was a 70s hotel. And uh, so it's kind of in a sketchy neighborhood. So that was interesting. So I walked in, but the lobby was beautiful. Like they'd completely mm-hmm. redone it. There were repl- replicas of, of like Renaissance paintings on the roof. It was all marble. It was really quite impressive. And then right next door to the lobby, there was this huge restaurant that um, probably sat three, 400 people, really big restaurant. And I looked in the restaurant, there wasn't a single person there. And there was this steam table, you know, full of stainless steel trays, huge trays. Mm. And all there was, was like mac and cheese and green beans. You know what green beans are like if they're like soaking in hot water for like an hour. It's like, you don't want to eat those things. So that's all there was. And I thought, that's kind of weird. And there was no people in there. Mm. No staff, no people. Mm. That's weird. So anyways, I checked in and I went up and... The rest of the hotel really hadn't been fixed up since the 1970s. So it smelled like smoke. The carpets okay. were old. I went into my room. It was kind of ratty, but it was okay. Um, put my computer on the bed, put my, my uh, luggage on the bed, and called my graduate student and went out to have some barbecue. So that's fine. So then I came back and uh, got into my room, and my, my graduate student came along. This was Colin, the guy who invented that personality test. And I walked in and all the drawers in the cabinets were open. Like, so there was a a bureau, four drawers and four drawers side Mm -hmm. to side. Mm -hmm. And there was the little table between the beds and there was a desk. And all of the drawers were open and not just a little bit open, like completely open. Mm -hmm. But my computer was still on the bed and so was the luggage. And I thought, well, that's weird. I didn't open those damn drawers. And if someone came in here to steal something, why didn't they take the computer? That'd be the logical yeah. thing to do. So we closed all the drawers and then we thought, well, maybe like maybe a big truck went by and like that's a pretty stupid hypothesis, but we couldn't think gotta, of anything else. Gotta, so yeah, we kind of so. shook the cabinet to see <laughs> right. if we could get the right. doors to open. We'd right. shut all the drawers. And when we turned around, the <laughs> damn drawer on the desk was open again. Hmm. So we shut that. So... Okay, so I had opened, the drawer was open in the middle little cabinet between the beds too, and there was a Gideon Bible in there, and it was open, and it, and it was open to the line that says, Ye, yea, though I walk through the sh- valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And I thought, well, that was pretty interesting. I closed that, <laughs> closed the door. And my graduate, we talked for a while, graduate student left, and I thought, I didn't really think much of it. I thought it was weird, you know, but, but right. whatever, it was weird. So then I went to sleep. In the middle of the night, I woke up and I thought, you know, that wasn't just weird. That was really weird. It was like someone was in my room, right? right? Because otherwise, why were the drawers open? And why were they open? Like, what's going on? (laughs) And the Bible was open. Well, and so the next morning, I went downstairs to this girl, black girl behind the counter. And uh, I I walked up and I said, look, I don't want to alarm you, but uh, um, I went out last night and when I came back, into my room, all the drawers were open. I think someone was in my room. And she said, I don't want to alarm you. God. But we know this place is haunted. Oh. And I always come to work with a baseball bat. And I thought, oh, 
well, of all the responses I thought Jesus. I would get, that, that more terrifying? Well, it was just, I, it was, it was surreal, right? And it was, it was, uh, it was like a movie moment. It was ridiculous. Right. So, um, I went and talked to my graduate advisor, an older guy who had been in the hotel, and he said that the night before he had taken a shower, and when he came out, there were two drawers open in his in his room. Mm. And so <laughs> these damn drawer opening. Yeah. Doors. Okay. So that, so, uh, and I'll, I'll finish this off with the other weird part of this story, which isn't quite so ghostly, but is also extremely weird, and it just gives you a sense of the place. So we went for breakfast the next day, and I took two different graduate students for breakfast. We went to this restaurant right mm-hmm. next door, and. There was no one there, and there was no staff. The same one in the hotel. Same one. The, mm-hmm. Same one. Very yeah. fancy, green right. marble. Like it might have been quite a place back in the 1970s. So we're sitting there and sitting there and sitting there and sitting there for like half an hour, and finally this waiter walks by and we stop and we say, "Well, do you have any menus?" He says, "Well, we don't have menus." And I said, well, what do you mean you don't have menus? He said, you can just order anything you want. What? And, and I said, well, you mean, you mean anything? He said, yeah, you just order anything you want and we'll cook That's it. So like, okay, so we ordered eggs and breakfast, right? right. Well, we'll have breakfast. How would that be? So then we're sitting there talking and we waited and we waited and we waited and we waited. It was like 45 minutes, 50 minutes. Nobody's there. No one's there. No, no one's not there. Cooking Nothing's for happening. Else. <laughs> Finally, he comes out with these plates and... He puts the plate down in front of me, and it's quite nicely garnished, and there's two eggs on it. And they are, I swear, they are raw. They have not been cooked. And I looked at him, and I looked at the plate, and it was the same with the other two people that were there. They gave them eggs that had just been put on the plate. What? He said, well, cracked right, cracked right, right on. on. It wasn't like they were undercooked. They weren't they white were just... with some clear on the top. Right. They were raw. Right. But, but nicely decorated. Sure. I thought, That's so well, weird. What, what the hell? What the hell? We said, okay, look, look. Like, we called him back. Or we said, you know, these eggs are raw. They're not cooked. It's like, what's going on? He said, oh, 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 oh we'll fix that. So then he went off into the kitchen. And it was like 20 minutes later. And he brought it back. And uh, they were cooked. And so we'd been in there for like two hours by that point, late for the conference. And I was laughing to my, to my students. I said, well, the only thing that could possibly top that off is if it was ridiculously expensive. So then he brought the bill. It was like $83. Oh, wow. Yeah, so, well. So but was he a ghost? Well, I don't know. Well, he wasn't a waiter, that's for sure, <laughs> yeah. and he certainly wasn't a cook. The right. money was but real that you paid? The, the money, money was, was real, real. <laughs> yes. Somebody's yes, enjoying yes. that money somewhere. So, so that, that was... That was that was a good ghost story. They, that was, yeah. That was that's a good great. story. Yeah, it's a good that, story. That's one of the best ones. The outside know. confirmation. Yeah. Yeah. Of it being a haunting yeah. is, is Well, is the dual great. confirmation, yeah. right? Because not only did the woman behind the counter freak out, like yeah. she was really freaked out when I told her that, you know, like her How eyes got... How did feel, by me. the way, when she's like, oh yeah, your, your room is haunted. Oh, it just made me... I was... It was so <laughs> surreal. It just made me laugh. Was I that thought, your first paranormal experience? No. No, really? it wasn't. No. And, and how did you wow. feel going back? To you spent presumably a more nice. Funny in that room? enough, it didn't bother me. They're just door like, opening. Well, it, it, they're not like raping the sleep ghost. Yeah, well, that's it. That's it. Like, There's it, some of those. Apparently. It's funny. You never know how you're going to respond to something like that, you <laughs> right. know. And you don't respond how you think you will. Hmm. And so, so, but it didn't bother me. <laughs> I figured if they didn't steal my computer and they didn't yeah, get me the first night, I was probably okay. It's right. kind of stupid, right? Because you think just like drawers. You'd think. You tell that story to someone, you'd think, if that's a real story, you left that hotel, right? You were smart, you packed up, you got the hell out of there, you went to a real hotel. But I didn't. I just stayed there, and it, the drawers didn't open again or anything. But So, yeah, that's my ghost story. So that's story. in Nashville? Like, 
That was in Nashville, yeah. That's good. It's like, that was go powerful, there? yeah. <laughs> well, I've never had a paranormal experience like that, so I'm living vicariously through our guests. Yeah, it was yeah. very, Someday. it was, well, it was funny because it, it wasn't frightening, but it was really comical and bizarre. <laughs> right. And so that was, I can't, I just, I'll never get that woman's response out of my mind because I just, I had no, I wouldn't have, I would have bet $10,000 against that response. Right, right, <laughs> like, right. She'd say, oh, sir, you know, we'll check it out. The, the security will check it out. <laughs> right, right. But no, no, no. She was like, her maybe eyes it was her. Maybe yeah. it was her in your room. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. But she didn't, like, oh, hit, she didn't hit me with the bat. Yeah. So that's a good Thankfully, thing. Thankfully, yeah. And the bat. I love that. It's like, what are you going to do? Hit a ghost <laughs> yeah. with a bat? Right. Like what? Yeah. Maybe she meant like a flapping bat or something. <laughs> right. But. but it, it, well, was, it was ridiculous. <laughs> I'll hit the ghost with the bat, and that'll fix him. Yeah, that you know, whatever it takes. Yeah. Like you said, it's interesting. She still goes to work with a yeah. bat. Right, 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 right. Life is tough out You'd there. Life is, back in. Life you is actually rough. think it's haunted. Find yeah. a new gig. Find a new job. Yeah, yeah that's the thing. <laughs> yeah. Don't bring a bat. Yeah. You know? <laughs> All right. Bring a Bible, at least. Yeah, bring a you Bible. You can hit him with the better. Bible, yeah. you know? <laughs> Funny. Well, thanks for joining yeah. us. It was Thanks a joy, for the invitation. Uh, privilege, <laughs> a pleasure. Yeah. And I uh, hope you guys enjoyed the ride. Uh, oh, uh, did you, would you like to talk about the program in the book one more the time for, for okay, the viewers? Have... And we'll put well, up a I'll graphic tell, I on can, the Well, I can tell you two things. Is I have a new book coming out in mm. January. It's called 12 Rules for Life, An Antidote to Chaos. Mm. And, you know, you mentioned earlier that one of the things you liked about our conversation was the way that the abstract ideas were sort of made concrete. Right. Well, that's what I've tried to do in this book is to say, well, here's some principles you can follow that would be, that will make your life better. Mm. And then I say philosophically why the principles are important, but also make them into something really practical and focal. Mm. So that's what the book's about. It's called An Antidote to Chaos because Great. you order your life with moral principles. And one of them is like, uh, treat yourself as if you're someone that you're trying to help. Mm. And another one is... Uh, don't let your children do anything that makes you dislike them, mm-hmm. which is it's really good advice for parents because you actually don't have to dislike your children. You know, if they're... <laughs> I haven't had kids yet, but is yeah. that a thing? Do parents hate their kids? You're hesitant to answer that. that. No, I'm not. <laughs> You're like... No, oh. I'm not. Lost. Sure. I mean, sure. God, is families can just be terrible. <laughs> just well, to hate your kids? It de- no. Is that I part mean, of the same coin of unconditional love and hating your kids? Well... Like life, the life idea of rough, sibling rivalry is, is really is old. <laughs> you know, siblings can tear each other apart. Sure, siblings. Yeah, but parents too, man. Like there's, there's parents have people. Especially yeah. if you're a psychologist, guess, yeah. you see people from yeah, you've wrecked seen, families, right. man. They're alcoholic. They're cruel. They're abusive. They're right. they're dismissive. They like people can be really, really hard on their yeah. kids. They don't encourage them. They compete with them. Mm. They replace their husband with their son. Like it's all the good stuff, all the good stuff. Yeah. And so, you know, you, and because you have the potential to be a monster, Hmm. you don't want to put your children (laughs) in harm's way. You want to help them behave so that you actually really like having them around. Then other people Hmm. will like having them around too. That's good. It's good. You're again, boiling down these kind of intangible thoughts, feelings into concrete. Something concrete. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, so that book is coming out. It's coming out in January, yeah. And then you have It's also... already on sale on Amazon. Oh, okay, yeah. you can pre-order it. So you can pre-order it, it. yeah. And then cool. the other one is the website. 
Yeah. yeah, I have. Well, I have a YouTube channel, which the is YouTube, Jordan, obviously, Jordan, Jordan, Peterson. Jordan Peterson videos, and yeah. it's got about 250 lectures on it or talks of various sorts. And mm. I've got about 500,000 subscribers now, so that's been coming along nicely. It's amazing Great numbers. for, we, like we talked before we started, it's amazing for the kind of content. Yeah, it's serious, serious, serious content and yeah. long too. It's yeah, it's amazing yeah. that people are, are watching it. And, yeah. you know, I started this series a while back, which is now 13 13 episodes, so to speak, on the psychological significance of the biblical stories, and that's been ridiculously popular. Mm -hmm. Strangely enough, like I've been renting a theater in Toronto and it sells out, Hmm. which is, and it's full of men. Hmm. It's like men don't don't go to church. Like (coughs) this isn't church, you know, but it's really, it's weird. But it's, again, it's, it's associated with this message of, well, two things is like three, let's say, aim at the highest good that you can, conceive of. That's what you should be doing with your life. So that's what Geppetto does in the movie Pinocchio. You know, mm. when he looks on a star and he wishes that his son can mm. transform into a real human being. It's he, he lifts his eyes up above the horizon and looks to the highest thing he can conceive of. And so that's what that represents. And that's what you should do with your life. And you should work to make things better and you should try not to lie. Mm. And, and you should accept responsibility for making things better. And so that's basically what I've been lecturing about you know, much more broadly and deeply than that. But that's a hugely resonating message with young people. It's so cool. Well, I think it's it's a bit of a um, unfortunate that the rep you get is just this anti-social justice warrior, anti-feminist figure. When I actually see a lot of the stuff you're doing is really helping people, and it's way beyond that. So guys out there looking to learn something, improve your, your situation, check out Jordan on YouTube. The book is coming out. Yeah. And the website one more time. There's two of them. One's called understandmyself.com. Okay. Yeah. And that's where the personality test is. You have to answer a hundred questions. Mm-hmm. You can do that 15 minutes or so. So it doesn't take a lot of time. The other one is self-authoring. And that's where you can write about your past. That's mm-hmm. one module. Mm-hmm. You can write about your faults and your virtues in the present. That's another module. And you can make a future plan. Mm-hmm. That's harder. Mm. It takes a fair bit of thinking, and the more you think and write, the better it works. Mm. But I would still say, don't get perfectionistic about it and do it over many days. Mm. And it will definitely, unless you've got your life planned out and you're really directed and you're all, you know, put together, you know where you're headed, that's a different thing. But if you're still haunted by your past and unsure Mm. about your future and nihilistic and that sort of thing, it's like, this will help you. Mm. And it's cheap. Mm. Like it's, it's, it's. It's way less expensive than therapy. It's way less sure. time consuming. Yeah. And it's, we know it works. Like we've, cool. we've tested it on several thousand people now and it has a very positive mm. effect. Cool. Very so great. like. Guys, once again, thank you. Yeah. Hope you guys thank had a good time. Tune in next week, next Friday with our guest. <laughs> Ela's going to be our guest. I'm going to interview her. We're going to try to get a little weird with it. A little, see what happens. That, is he going to find out things about you that he doesn't know? I'm putting a pri- I'm going to put he a private eye on her. He already knows everything. <laughs> oh, Probably but not. We'll but we'll see. Maybe. maybe. Yeah, ma- actually, I might. That should maybe. be my objective, right? You could right. find out what she thinks you could improve. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Although she might let you know about she, that. Yeah, now she doesn't hesitate. <laughs> yeah. She freaks. Yeah, yeah, she does, does tell you that. I'd be like, Ela, can you please not? I get that enough. No. Anyway. Great time. Yeah. Thank you. See you guys next week. <laughs>